This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and top of the morning to you. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. Your coach, your guide on the side. Do you have any Irish in you? I'm just curious. I I oh, you a, do. I have a, a, a weenie, a tea weenie bit. <laughs> I don't know. I don't speak. I don't. I don't know. You don't speak Gaelish? I don't. Uh, yeah. Is that how you say it? Gaelish or Gaelic? Gaelic. I don't know. Yeah, you've got yeah. to put some phlegm in there. Um, Yeah, I got a, a wee bit of Irish in me. Uh, probably just about as much as the leprechaun that's magically delicious. They're magically delicious. Yeah, just about that much. Hey, we have got so much to talk about. Pretty basic little uh, outline I've created for us today. Hurricanes, Hillary, and Ambassador Ivana Trump. Hmm. I thought you were going to go with four H's. (laughs) We're going to talk about four H's. I was trying to, but I couldn't get Ivana Trump into uh, an H. Ivana Trump. Ivana uh, we'll get into all of this fun stuff. Plus, on top of it all, nostalgia. Okay, I'm going to give you a test, Terry. Yes. By the way, I forgot to tell you, Terry's here. Terry South, Jeffrey oh. Simpson, the gang's all here, ready to have fun. Listen to this song, Terry, hmm. and I want you to think of what comes to your mind when you hear it. Little Beatles for you. Yesterday. All my troubles seem so far away. Mm, you said it. So this is conjuring up something in your brain, I can tell. Your eyes are kind of shifting. Hmm. Your brow furrowed. <laughs> Jeff's licking his lips <laughs> for some reason. You know so what I think of when I hear this your mind, song? Jeffrey? I imagine uh, Peter McNichol and Rowan Atkinson singing this song in the movie Bean. Bean, really? He sings this song as Mr. Bean. Oh, wow. That'd Actually, the only part that he sings is, Suddenly. Oh, uh, yeah. And yeah. he sings it. Okay, so uh, does that make you feel good? Good memories? Yeah. It's a funny movie. Like warm all over? Yeah. Cozy? Mm-hmm. Like, like you're almost in a onesie, rolling around on the floor in a nice okay, it's bare getting, blanket. It's getting weird now. Wow, yeah. Okay. How about you? How about you, Terry? What What are you feeling? I just saw this actually on the Wonder Years, I think. Really? Which episode? I don't know. My son and I were just watching, you know, random, not random, but just like, four, you know, we watch like two or three episodes. Yeah, a half yeah. hour, we just crank through them and they play this song because they're trying to tug on your heartstring. I see this song as manipulative. How's that? Wow. The Wonder Years, that's all about nostalgia. Oh, yeah, the whole it's, show. Exactly. So today we're talking about nostalgia. By the way, when you when you saw this with the Wonder Years... Were you imagining that someday you could marry... Winnie what? Cooper. Winnie Cooper. What was her name, though? Was that her name on the show? Dana, Danica McKellar is the actress's yeah, name. Did you ever what, think... When I was a kid, maybe, sure. Yeah. I'm a little taken at the moment. You're you notice, now, you yeah. notice they showed less and less of her during a couple of key seasons because uh, she was taller than Kevin? Yeah. So they kind of wrote her out of the script for a few episodes there? Well, that happens when you're young. Yeah. And then there's that, that girl you fall in love with, and then all of a sudden she's a foot taller than you. And she can outrun you. <laughs> she's faster than you. So nostalgia is what we're talking about today. Is there, is there, is it healthy to have this nostalgic 
kind of run in your mind where could, you just go back to the day yes, – where you go back to yesterday. And yeah. You just can't – you just don't give it up and you just keep living it. It depends. Over. Sometimes it's good to look back and have Over. good times, right? We yeah. talked about this yesterday with all those new game systems coming out of old video exactly. games that we used to play. In my opinion, when you do something like that, whether it's a movie or a video game, it's just never the same as when you were young. Mm. It, it, you can't go back, or can you? And is there healthy ways to do it? And then is there a line that you just – once you've crossed it, then it's now unhealthy? Well, when you misremember, which was a yeah, a it, term they used when the baseball players are being interviewed about 10 years ago by Congress, someone goes, I misremembered. <laughs> um, <clears throat> misremembered whether or not I took that illegal substance. <laughs> right. But when you misremember the past, yeah, and then you want to uh, somehow bring that past back, but the past wasn't what you thought it was, or the past is you're in, it's, we're incapable of ch- of achieving returning yeah to greatness, and, and you, or like it, that's one it, thing it if you're a pro athlete too, right? That, I mean that makes well, like, that guy was trying not to admit the fact that he took you know yeah. steroids, but but when you're a high school athlete and you still keep talking about how you almost took state. Yeah. Mm. Like you were in the semis. Like I have a I have a letter jacket in my closet. Yeah. I think I wore it. Why don't you wear it more? I wore it like two or three times to actually in high school. Yeah. But it was this big, thick, heavy jacket. So mm-hmm. you're walking around school. It's hot in the school, right? They turn right. the heat on. Yeah. But you looked cool. I, yeah. But it was just the most uncomfortable thing. So I only wore it just a few times. Will you wear it for us tomorrow? It is a massive trophy. Wear no. it tomorrow. I we'll, post, it. we'll do a little no. Twitter post. I've no. got an In-N-Out Burger Letterman jacket that my wife won't let me wear. Ho, 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 so it. I lettered in uh, fry cooking. You did. And uh, yeah, drive through. Wow. Drive through voices. I, I would do I don't voices. I think they call that a Letterman jacket. It is a Letterman jacket. You can look it up online uh, right now. Uh, I think so they're just calling because you it, make something. Like, yeah. I mean, I didn't letter and fry cooking. <sighs> I said that to make myself feel better. But I actually do have the Letterman jacket. You never certified. Never certified on that. On that, they part didn't of the stitch kitchen? a letter onto my jacket. Let's just say. What did they stitch on your jacket? Your name. No, not even that. So really, it's not even your jacket yet. But they gave me the jacket. Well, they had to after you put all that grease on it. Hmm. So I actually think it can be healthy. To look, is good. I, I think it, it can be better in a way to look back or try these things that you did when you were a kid and not get the same fulfillment out of it because you realize, hey, I, I, have, I live a fulfilling life right now. Absolutely. That was a great time that I had when I was younger. If you But can I don't do need that. that anymore. But if you can bring it from the past to the present and then live today, that's probably the healthy part. At some point, you just you got to let that football season go. Yeah. I mean, it was 30 years ago. We had our reunion and uh, we actually, not to brag, but our team took state. See? Is yeah. that good nostalgia? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was great. Except the funny thing is, is... The, most of us don't talk about it anymore, but the football team still does. Yeah. But they were a part of that. So we're all proud. That was great. Now, it's fine to go to your reunion and have those sort of thoughts and that kind of thing. Yeah, but that if, was a day. That if, was one day. Say you're in a business meeting and you're like, you know, back when I was the state champion and you, this comes <laughs> up quite a bit, that might be a problem. Yeah. But again, too, I guess it depends where you live. Like if you are in Florida and you're the state champion in Florida and you were you know, one of the yeah. lead Players. At some point, that needs to kind of become something of your past. Yeah. Your cachet should go down a bit. Yeah. Once, uh, you shouldn't toss it out there and expect people to be like, all right, stay champ. Or if you're Uncle Rico, that Uncle would work Rico. as well. If a coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. 
No doubt in my mind. Little Napoleon Dynamite. Uncle Rico. No doubt. Who could have thrown the ball over the mountain, probably. That's what he said. How much you want to bet I can throw that football over them mountains? <laughs> Nostalgia, folks. We'll be getting to that again. Also, a little hurricane update, a little Hillary. She, her book's out, and she's starting to – some people say she's whining. Some people – I think it's actually pretty interesting insight into what she was thinking. I, I listened to 40-plus minutes of her discussing her book, and it's not wow. really whining. Uh-uh. It's more her just trying to like, as everyone stills trying, I think trying to Makes wrap sense. their mind around what happened. Like, how did this happen? Yeah, yeah, I think there's a difference between whining and saying, "No, seriously, how did this happen?" No, like seriously, seriously, you guys, seriously. I don't know how serious I can. Get. How did this happen, you guys? So we'll get to that. Plus, I do want to mention about Ambassador Ivana Trump. She was extended the offer to be the ambassador of Czechoslovakia, I believe. Hmm. So now all ex-wives are and didn't want possible it. or no? She didn't want it. She rejected what? it. We'll talk about that. Interesting stuff. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Trump will travel to the U.S. Virgin Islands within the next week to see firsthand the damages of the territory after Hurricane Irma. Governor Kenneth Mapp said Monday the U.S. Virgin Islands took a heavy hit from the soup from the superstorm, which was a Category Five when it swept through the Caribbean. The aftermath left the territory like a war zone. Residents uh, told Buzz. Feed News with Congressional Representative Stacey Plaskett informing MSNBC that we've lost about 70% of our infrastructure and utility system on St. Thomas and all of our utility system on the island of St. John. President Trump will visit Florida on Thursday. The death toll from Hurricane Irma in the U.S. has doubled, reaching 22 following its destructive path through the Caribbean. Outside the U.S., at least 38 people were reported killed by the storm. More than 70 people were killed by Hurricane Harvey just days before uh, Irma hits. That's kind of what we've been... And honestly, how do they recover? I mean, too, did you see that... I mean, some of the these key, islands the Florida are now... The Florida Keys are just destroyed. They're brown. They're, they're just saying, brown. All the green right. from the island, gone. The Florida Keys, they're saying that 90% of the homes are damaged and 25% are just gone. Like, un, you got to tear them down, start over. Oh, my heavens. Wow. So it just it's crazy amount of destruction. We'll see more of that. By with the way, the, uh, the, the cruise line industry, mm-hmm. all these people had trips to these islands. This is going to be – so you don't go. No. Am I safe to go would you stay? next August? Yeah, you'll be fine. Okay. Okay. You might want to check. Maybe, maybe you can go down there and plant some trees Yeah, bring something. some trees. <laughs> Representatives from Facebook and Twitter could be asked to testify before the Senate Intelligence Committee in the ongoing investigation into Russia's involvement in the 2016 election. Uh, Facebook admitted last week that it unknowingly sold $100,000 worth of ads to a Russian troll farm during the 2016 presidential election. On Monday, uh, additional reports had the Russians using fake identities to organize inflammatory protests in the United States and advertised them on Facebook. One of them was in Idaho Falls. Really? They had 40 people say they were interested, but only like four people showed up. So I'm not sure what the effectiveness of that was, but they were organizing. The Supreme Court on Tuesday blocked a federal appeals court ruling made last week that would have let refugees with support from resettlement agencies enter the United States despite President Trump's travel ban. About 24,000 people could be impacted by the ruling. Which was made without comment and by the five by and by five justices. The Supreme Court in June allowed Trump's executive order that barred certain people from Iran, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, uh, Libya, and Yemen from entering the U.S. to go through making an exception for those with bona fide relationships in the U.S. The justices are scheduled to hear the arguments over the legality of the executive order on October 10th. I like how they're not in session, but they're still 
adjusting their yeah. original ruling, and I don't know. We'll, I mean, that, we'll, that's, hopefully this all gets resolved, and there's some sort of final decision. Does on it? This. Does it make more? It seems like it would clarify when the Supreme Court does something. It seems like it would clarify things. Yeah. Not really clarifying anything yet. No, they keep muddling it up. and So we'll see on August 10th when they hear the case what okay. they're going to do. Okay. And finally, yes, we've talked about Fatbergs. Yeah. They found a new one. Where? British engineers are saying they have launched a sewer war against a giant Fatberg clogging London sewers. Tim's water service officials said Tuesday it's likely to take three weeks to dissolve the outsized... Fatberg. They cautioned against expecting quick results as the Fatberg is 250 yards long. Oh, my word. That's three soccer fields, or the it's longer than the Tower Bridge. No way. Yeah, I saw a graphic showing the Tower Bridge is about 244 yards. This is 250 yards. Is the Tower Bridge made of fat? No, it's it's made of historic concrete. Lizard. Um and as it say, or and it weighs as much as eleven double decker buses, or just a little bit less than a blue whale. Don't you? Love- wow! Wow! That is big. <laughs> That's a big. Blue whales are huge. The unsavory blob consists of uh, congealed. That's my favorite mm. word with this. Wet wipes, diapers, fat, and oil. Uh, the administrator Matt, uh, what's his name? Uh, whatever he's the administrator says the fatberg is a total monster and taking a lot of manpower and machinery to remove it. As it is set hard, he said the task is basically like trying to break up concrete. Uh. This thing is solidified in a (laughs) a crazy way. Eight workers are using high-powered jet hoses to break up the blob before sucking it out into tankers for disposal at a recycling site. Oh, wow. You know what? It seems like you could just light it on fire. That's my thought. It's just oil and, and just paper, let it burn. so light it's it. It's just a big candle. Wasn't this the basis of the, the old 1950s film, The Blob? Probably. I think that was a fatberg. But The Blob was actually moving, right? It yeah, was, it was a mobile. living entity of types. You don't yeah. want the fatbergs to start moving. We, we did an entire um, expose yes. on fatbergs. <laughs> <laughs> and if you missed it, you need to go look it up. Because I'll, I'll put it out on Twitter. We had a it Fatberg expert. From Dublin, Ireland. I mean, it, you know how hard it is to find a Fatberg expert? And we found one. It was tough. It took me quite a while. But National, National Geographic had an article. Yeah. They quoted this guy. We found him. Then we had to cancel the interview because his wife's uh, water broke. That's right. <laughs> and then we had him on the a week later. Of. It was great. Speaking of Fatbergs. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, yeah, that sounded gross. He found it uh, interesting that we were so like interested in this topic. He's no, like, it's why, why are you fascinated by this? And I go, have you seen the pictures? And he's like, oh, okay. I mean, well, it's National, a National Geographic was interested. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. This this one is crazy. How big it is? We love anything from the sewage world. <laughs> That's so bad. Isn't that weird? But the, again, this is this is something that our, only our show would bring you. I did see a description of the sewer being a Victorian era sewer pipe. Really? So it's small. So things just – there's not a lot of room to move things around. Yeah. Where, you know, more modern construction makes it bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're just dealing with old pipes. Not not a problem. Not Something a problem. you can relate to, Matt. Speaking of old pipes. We call them old pipes. <laughs> the old Pied Piper. I um, Crazy thing I found about Hillary Clinton's book. Hmm. So Jason Chaffetz who is now um, Fox oh, News contributor. Fox News contributor Jason Chaffetz used to be a congressman from Utah and was over the House uh, something committee. Investigative yeah. committee, yeah. Uh, on the way out of the inauguration of President Trump, 
Hillary Clinton walked up the stairs and shook Chaffetz's hand and they had a little uh, you know, conversation, a little private conversation I think she said. She, she shared some personal words with him. He said, hey, nice, nice coat and she said yeah. thanks or something. Thank you. Well, she kind of dissed him in the book because she said that exchange, she didn't realize that was Jason Chaffetz. She thought that was Reince Priebus. Reince! Reince! But didn't – So take that, Reince. Didn't she sit in a committee with him? Or Jason. For like 11 hours? Yeah. W- but, wouldn't you know? Well, but your eyes get tired after a while. Is that what it, okay. And there's so many faces on Capitol Hill. I can't tell you how many times I've – misremembered students names here at the show that's why you don't you don't you just say hey buddy no i like especially the girls i'll think one girl is another girl and i yeah i can't uh, yeah like i'll think one girl's carissa yes and then i'll think another girl's carissa or lauren well we have another girl's lauren if you say lauren you're pretty close because we have two yeah and then we have liana but it's not liana (laughs) I always call her Liana. Yeah. Then I correct. I say it both ways when I talk with her just to cover all my bases. Yeah. Even though I know it's one way. But we it's not that we don't love them. It's just that there's so many of them. <laughs> so, and we've got so many other things that we're trying to remember Hillary and our Cl- brains don't work. Hillary Clinton said she was unaware basically. Didn't, didn't of, know it was – didn't know it was – she thought it was Reince. He's much taller. But he, then – He has a lot more hair than Reince. Yeah. I don't understand that. Yeah. And um, – but you know. She was, she had had a very stressful right. month prior to that, and then you really? know during the yeah. ceremony, people are trying to put on ponchos. If you remember that, it just kind of you know people just confused. I mean, how she fun! Was leaving. I mean, really, and maybe it's not even true, but what a great diss! Oh yeah, like, oh, I, I don't unaware. even know who you are. <laughs> I thought you were Reince. By the way, Ivana Trump apparently, according to the Daily Mail, which you know is oh yeah legit, uh, Ivana Trump says Donald asked her to be ambassador to the Czech Republic. Hmm. She turned him down because she did not want an 8 to 12 job. Isn't that a weird phrase? 8, eight to, 12. to 12. Like 8 to noon? Who is wouldn't that, is, want an 8 to noon job? I've got an 8 to noon job. As it's do fantastic. I. It's a great, great Love opportunity. It. Plus you get a nap. So she turned down the chance to serve as ambassador. She said, I like my freedom and I want to do what I want to do. Go wherever I want to go with whomever I want. Hmm. That's so, by the way, hmm. she made that announcement at uh, New York's Fashion Week. Of oh, course. Nice. Of course. Yeah. Nice. So she doesn't – I mean not everyone wants to be. Sure, she brought Ivanka to the world. Yes. I mean like – and Donald Jr. and the other one. Eric? Eric. He just had a kid apparently. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, so he all did. three of those are from Aren't the they? same area? I don't know. I think they are. And then there, then there's the other one. The other one, Tiffany, Tiffany. the one everyone forgets. Yeah, and Tiffany's the one that – Justice for she's Tiffany. She's from the other um, – I just was that a Stranger Things reference? This. Is that Marla? No, I don't know. You guys just went to a movie reference? No, there's a lot of people out there that wanna Barb. want justice for Tiffany because they feel like she's being snubbed here. Justice for Tiffany. But you have the three favored children, then yeah. like, Tiffany's off in law school But I, I thought Tiffany wanted to kind of be... Yes and no. Yeah. I mean, she's... I mean, if she looks at it, the others are getting in trouble. Like, Baron is just trying to hide. Yeah, the, the little kid. The Baron's he's loving trying. it, and I, I, Baron, I love Baron because he's he just gets to do whatever he wants to do. Do you think his middle name is Von? Baron Von Trump. Yes. But do you remember, like during the inauguration, all the other kids got some sort of like wardrobing? Yeah. And so Tiffany showed up, and they're like, "Oh, we don't have anything for you." Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, we forgot her. She, you know what? That's yeah. That's so kind I, of she's kind of been left out. There may be a Disney movie about this. 
Wow. The daughter that was left out. I'm guessing Disney, Disney is not going to dedicate a film to Donald Trump. Tiffany Files. Really? Yeah. Check it out. We, we, that's it. That's all you need to know. Poor Tiffany. I forgot. I didn't even think about that. Up next, folks, we're going to be talking about the psychological benefits and trappings of nostalgia. You won't want to miss it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Thank you, Babs. Little Barbara for you. You know, all of us are guilty at one time or another of thinking of about the good old days, right? Often thinking about simpler times can give us a nice break from whatever is going on at the moment. But can nostalgia be dangerous? Here to speak with us today about it is Dr. Christine Bacho, a professor of psychology at Lemoyne College in New York and an expert in nostalgia. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Now, Christine, what what made you, uh, just kind of on a personal note, want to study nostalgia? Of all the things you could choose as a, as a researcher, as a professor, why nostalgia? I think it's because I myself am a pretty nostalgic person. And even though I began studying it quite a long time ago, and I was really quite young then, I had noticed that almost everyone can be nostalgic at certain times, and so that got me interested in whether it was a healthy experience or an unhealthy one. Now, define it for us, just so we're all on the same page. Uh, you know, what, what are the limits of nostalgia? What, what is nostalgia? That's a very good question, because today some people define it slightly differently. You will find definitions that really are synonymous with just being sentimental or feeling pleasant feelings. But the actual term, nostalgia which was coined in 1688, Hmm. is a little more complex. It's defined as a bittersweet feeling or emotion uh, when we long for or miss something from our past. Oh, so that's interesting. We actually, it's almost, uh, it's an echo to the past, but it includes the, the good and the bad of it. We long for it. We miss it. That's exactly right, because there's this recognition or acknowledgement that what once was can never be again. Hmm. And that's true regardless of your timeline, whether you're thinking about childhood a long time ago or whether you're talking about something that happened just yesterday, if you just graduated from school, for example, you know that you can never actually have that experience again. Yeah, and in fact, I guess that's for some, is that where this, where nostalgia might become a little harmful is if we, we just keep longing for it, if we keep wanting it and, and never are able to move into our present? That is why I believe in the early days of studying and writing about nostalgia, most theorists really took a very negative yeah. view of nostalgia, and it was defined as a disease by a medical doctor. Oh, really? And he was defining it that way because he thought of it as extreme homesickness. And what he was observing in soldiers away from home for the first time was that they longed for home to such a point that they stopped eating and they became what today we would call clinically depressed. 
And he feared that without some kind of intervention, they would in fact even die. So it has a very negative history. And that's one of the things that surprised me when I first started researching it. Is it, um, I mean, and what I loved about the article that we read um, in the conversation, the psychological benefits and trappings of nostalgia, is is the fact that I guess we've kind of uh, moved, we've evolved a little bit our view. It's not... It's not just this negative thing. It um, you're finding out that there are there are kind of positive or even at least neutral benefits of nostalgia. You're absolutely right. Uh, in order to study it as a social scientist would, I first developed a way of measuring it, and I measure it pretty much as a personality disposition or trait. And people who are more prone to nostalgia, more likely to experience it more frequently tend to be healthier, not less healthy. Uh, so I was very surprised by my initial findings. So people who tend to be nostalgic, for example, are not typically depressed people or very sad people. They tend to have very good, healthy uh, profiles. And so that was the first inkling that we had, that there was something more to nostalgia than just the negative side. Yeah, it seems like... You don't want to be brain dead, right? You don't want – and times were good and I think too we're finding there's a lot you can learn from your past that could actually create other great moments today. Do we use nostalgia as a way or can we use nostalgia as a way to you know, recreate good events today? Absolutely. In fact, uh, most of the contemporary research empirically – documents what you're talking about. Most of the time, nostalgia is a good coping skill, but it also has some really fundamental psychological benefits. Of When you start thinking about it, you realize that nostalgia motivates us to remember the past and to reflect upon it in an intelligent way. It's that reflection on it that can make us use it either for good or for bad. So earlier on, you mentioned it would be unhealthy if we became trapped in it, as it would be if we were perpetually longing for the past and not looking toward the future. In the most uh, cases that we have researched, people don't get trapped in the past. Quite the converse, in fact. Uh, being nostalgic correlates with optimism hmm. and looking forward to the future, not, not really longing for the past incessantly. That's interesting. So it correlates with optimism. Um, does it? What else does it... What else does it correlate? What are the other benefits of it? Is it a, is it a stress reliever? Is it, is it something, too, that we can go into kind of our daydreaming mind and get away from the world? Absolutely. And in fact, part of it depends upon what you're being nostalgic for at the moment. So there are certain things that we're more nostalgic for than others. And this is where it becomes so fascinating. As people go through life, some of the things they really longed for early in life, they sort of give up. For instance, if you were talking about a young adult or even a midlife adult, it's not that they're going to be nostalgic for the toys they played with. They tend to be nostalgic for the way life was, especially with respect to relationships. Hmm. And so a good example of how a nostalgic memory can be so helpful is when someone is in an adverse situation, and adversity can come in so many different ways. Someone could be diagnosed with a serious illness, 
someone could have to relocate. We've seen so much of that with the recent hurricanes and flooding. Someone could have a transition in their life, such as uh, a divorce or a death in the family. In times like those, it's very helpful to think back and, in fact, remember the people that you admired most and loved most and how they coped with problems. So there's quite a bit of role modeling that can now occur in your adult life through a vicarious mental exercise. kind of goes like this. Wow, what would Dad have done? Hmm. Or what would Mom do if she were here? And we role model the best traits that we loved about the people that uh, come from our past, whether they're still alive or not. Boy, that is – that's really health, healthy. I mean because then it's also you, – you have the ability to go access um, other thoughts, other uh, – it, it's almost like a, the perfect positive psychology solution-oriented approach to life. Go back to what worked and go find your ideal role models even if they're no longer here to help you solve today's problem. That's absolutely right. And when you focus on that, you realize that the old expression – being trapped in the past is exactly the wrong way to look at nostalgia. The reverse of it is true. If it were not for memories, especially nostalgic memories, then we would sort of be uh, in a chaos situation. We wouldn't have a sense of continuity that gives us the stability and the security that holds us together throughout all the different changes in life. So nostalgia is a little bit like a psychic glue that can hold things together when we're fearful uh, that things are becoming undone, that there's a lack of control or order in our lives or in the life around us. Yeah. Man, interesting stuff, Christine. Um, I, I want to take a break but come back and continue discussing this too. Like it seems like nostalgia for me is kind of a really positive word, but it also seems like we might fall into a trap of um, of being stuck in not not thinking of what they we could do to get out of our present situation, but instead maybe wallowing or or sliding into a pattern of I don't know what we'd call it negative nostalgia. But uh, more lessons from Dr. Christine Bacho about the psychological benefits and trappings of nostalgia. It's uh, another part of humanity that we're trying to explore here on the Matt Townsend Show. And I smell the sea like it never smelled Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, on the phone with us is Dr. Christine Bacho, who is a professor of psychology at Lemoyne College in New York and an expert in nostalgia, which uh, is really a great definition that she gave us earlier is the bittersweet longing of the past. Bittersweet. So it has two sides to it. We, uh, we enjoy kind of going back and thinking about the good old days, but then there's kind of a bitter side to it that, oh, we just can't have that back. And today she's talking to us um, about really, I guess, I guess, Christine, first of all, welcome back. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And the, the interesting thing for me is, um, you, I guess there is, you could possibly get trapped there if you're not 
I guess, more conscientiously uh, trying to drive yourself. Do do people go there um, to escape? Do you sense that? Do they go there? And, and do you, I guess, in your professional practice also as a counselor, have you seen people that really are, are too nostalgic? It's a very good question, and the research on that question is just beginning. It's in its infancy. But we do have a fair amount of knowledge based on clinical experience. And one of the interesting observations is, yes, there is a risk to engaging in nostalgic reverie. And the risk is partly that not only can it be so appealing that if your present life is not in a good shape, that you might be a little tempted to stay there as a a form of escapism. That's not typical, however. But another risk is that you're not quite sure what you're going to uncover as you go back through your life review. So not everyone had the perfect childhood or the perfect teenage years. And so you might uncover, for example, Uh. regrets over unfulfilled dreams. Or you might feel that you've gotten off course, that now, because of the way life led you, you're no longer in touch with your what we call the authentic self, who you really wanted to be and who you really want it to become. So there are risks here that you might uncover issues that you had sort of ignored or forgotten over time. And some people are more prepared or equipped to handle that than others. Mm. So, for instance, if someone is already in a state of clinical depression, then they are at higher risk for some of these more unfavorable effects of nostalgia they might decide that it's just easier to sort of live in the past than to make the effort to try to move forward. And another uh, type of personality that is at higher risk is the kind of person who might have an anxiety problem where they worry so much and they get so afraid of moving forward because the future is uncertain. The past, on the other hand, is certain because it's finished. So sometimes people would rather stay with the safety of the past than take on with courage the uncertain future. And there are ways to deal with this. Hasn't it seems like with nostalgia, just simply because of time passing and kind of the evaporative thought process that we have where a lot of our facts diminish, um, we might have a tendency to make more of our past than it was or to deify people more from our past than is warranted. Well, there's a little bit of that, what they refer to as rosy retrospective. (laughs) And in a rosy retrospective state, what you're doing is being selective. So you're more inclined to think back to the happier things and pretend that the negative things really didn't exist. And so what you end up with is this whole picture that looks just more positive than it really was. But that's why I'm suggesting that if we're really serious about reviewing our past, we're not going to find usually 100% happiness. And this is where someone who has a grounding in a deeply rooted tradition, philosophy, uh, religious faith, something that gives them meaning and purpose, has a real advantage because we refer to it as positive reappraisal. When you look at the past, and you find some conflicts or some issues, you can reappraise the meaning and the purpose of that. In our society today, it's very hard for people to appreciate that 
suffering, whether we're talking about physical or emotional suffering, can have a value to it. We spend so much of our technology and our uh, progress trying to pretend that we can all be 100% happy all the time. Right. And actually, if you, anyone examines his or her life, they realize that some of the most meaningful moments in our life engaged us more deeply in both joys and sometimes sorrows. And an example of that would be if someone is helping their loved one, maybe an elderly loved one, uh, through hospice, obviously there's a great deal of sorrow and a feeling of loss and anticipated grief, but also the great meaning that comes from being together and being there as a support for that person. And one of the most important positive uh, benefits of, of nostalgia, in my opinion, is that it does facilitate what I call the best emotions we have, empathy, compassion, caring for others. It helps to connect us to other people. Hmm. How do we, um, just as we're wrapping up, how do we help facilitate healthy, nostalgic you know, recovery and, and um, processing for somebody that is going through a traumatic loss or a, or a major change in life? That's an excellent question. And obviously, if an individual has had a traumatic past or they don't feel that they can cope on his or her own, they feel overwhelmed or they sense hopelessness, they really, really should take advantage of uh, counseling or professional help because there is so much available out there for them. But in, in the less serious cases, the ordinary cases of life, the most important key, I think, to help others as well as to help yourself. And sometimes we have to redefine ourselves when conditions make that such that we can no longer be who we were. If you mm. take the example of an athlete who through injury or aging can no longer engage in his or her sport, we might have to discover a new way of being who we are. And one of the best ways of doing that is to reach out to others, not just to get support, but to give support. When you support someone else, and we've seen some heroic examples of this throughout our history, where in times of need and disaster, people spent their energies helping other people and discovered the joys of that. And that helps them redefine who they're going to be for the future. Yeah. Boy, that's beautiful. Really a powerful lesson, I think, for all of us, Christine. Again, Christine Bacho um, is a professor of psychology at Lemoyne College in New York and an expert in nostalgia. Thank you so much, Christine, for that insight. And really, uh, going back is a way of kind of solidifying who you are, understanding the lessons that, that you can bring back to the present day. Um, and there's times when a transition, loss, that you might have to go back in a nostalgic uh, way and, and re- reset your life, reset who you are, re-identify. Powerful stuff. That's why we bring you these uh, great insights, every one of us, just trying to make it through this crazy thing called life. We will continue the journey with you. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. Uh, interesting discussion we just had with Christine Bacho about nostalgia, and um, it, it's funny because you know we have 
and I, I see it a lot, where uh, these these boys that are uh, and girls, uh, young women, young men that go on LDS missions for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, they leave. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're just 18-year-old, 19-year-old kids, really. And the next thing they know, they're gone for a year and a half or two years. And she made a really interesting point that maybe one of the best ways to use nostalgia would be at these transition points in your life. When mom or dad uh, pass away, when uh, you're going through a divorce, when you are all of a sudden away. And if you're not careful and you get too stuck in it, then you start to have – um, what did she call it? Like homesickness, which is what she found with the military back in the day. Uh, when they go away, the soldiers would fall into homesickness, and literally, it was being diagnosed as a as a di- like a, a true medical diagnosis. You had nostalgia. You wow! Are, you are going. You are depressed. And uh, anyway, I thought, how did we get through it? I was away for two years, and I honestly, this sounds totally crazy, but I used to pray that I'd get an appendicitis. Because <laughs> really? I, I was sure if I could just blow my appendix out my side, then I, I would just come home. Hmm. And uh, I prayed and prayed and prayed. And in all my faithfulness, about two months later, my companion uh, dropped to his knees with an appendicitis. So you inflicted another yeah. person. So right wow. then I'm like, wow. I've got some serious faith here. Misdirected a little bit. Yeah. And I thought maybe I, I guess I shouldn't pray for Did that. Did you anymore. apologize? I didn't even tell him. Tell. Oh, wow. But this is the same guy, by the way. Elder Roa was his name. Did that end his mission? No. Oh, no. It doesn't mm-hmm. end anything. I, got, I actually went and sat at the hospital with him for three days. Served you right. And then I worked with him later in my two-year mission trip, and uh, the guy was still carrying his appendix around in a mason jar, just f- floating in like, formaldehyde. And it actually did leak once. That's a souvenir mm. for you. Yeah. Have you seen an appendix? No, I have not. Just it the looks ones like on, a finger. Just basically. the ones on TV. Yeah. <sighs> See nostalgia. I just went there. Great she also memories. said it's healthy. Yeah. People who who experience or try to experience nostalgia were more healthy, is what she found in her research. Yeah. It's I, a healthy I thought, thing. I thought that might not be necessarily a a healthy behavior, right? If you dwell on it, you know what I mean. When yeah. I, when I, when I, when people want to be nostalgic, I, I guess you know if you're doing it every once in a while, great. But you know, maybe someone gets kind of caught up in it. But it, it, in a weird way, it's it's a weird healthy, right? Because it, it it makes you feel good, so it actually probably is medicating you, right? With yeah. with good hormone, good feelings, whatever you're going back to. Mm. If you live there too long, then you might not be able to live your present. But I was thinking like as a missionary back in the day, that was kind of a good thing. Like anything that could get me through another day until I started to create my own moments in my new world, it was kind of helpful. Oh, I miss those. Oh, I'd give anything to have that food. Oh, I would. Mm-hmm. I wonder what they're doing. It's that birthday. It's my mom's birthday. I wonder what they're all doing on my mom's birthday. It also helps you decipher who your true friends are. Ooh, what do you mean? What I mean by that is, let's say you, you know, let's go back to your mission example. You have these amazing experiences with these these people that you didn't really have a choice whether, you know, whether you could be with them or not. Right, right. They were just forced with you. Yeah, you're just kind of forced into it. Yeah. So now let's say you're back, you've been home for years, and you try to talk to them, and all you can talk about is, hey, remember that time on the mission? If you have nothing else to talk That's about, so true. maybe you know, you're know you not as good of friends as you thought. That's true. 
It's so true. And I guess, too, in the end, so everybody out there in listener land, we could all just be thinking nostalgia, good, or at least, any, if anything, it's neutral. It's not positive or negative. But we also have to learn to live in the present. Is is somebody that spends a lot of time going back, reliving their old high school days, are they any less effective than the kid or the person, the adult that sits there and looks at social media all day? Both. It's a good point. Both might be kind of annoying to talk to. They both are annoying. <laughs> and by the way, and so, so if you do it too much, then all of a sudden you maybe aren't progressing and neither is the person that sits there and is living in a real world, just took a selfie, but then spends 30 minutes, you know, re-filtering um, her selfie. In the end, I guess most of us need to learn to live in the present. Yes. It, it couldn't hurt. It couldn't hurt. But the other thing she brought, that, that's a crazy idea about what about when you go back and you realize, man, I've, I'm a train wreck because I was such a different person back then than I am now and I'm not anywhere near what I wanted to be. So then I guess that's a, you know, that's a moment where you've got to decide, OK, now what am I going to do? Yeah, a lot of people would gladly leave the past behind them. Yeah. I mean like even like the high school reunion, I'm like, eh, I'm kind of glad. I, I like who I am now. Because I just feel like I'm stronger than I was then. Yeah. So go. I don't want to go back to that. That's a good point. I mean, I when I was in high school, I was happy with who I was. But looking back, it's like, oh, I was kind of a totally little dweeb. But wouldn't you give? You know, I'd give a thousand bucks to have my body back then. I mean, not to not to brag, but I was ripped. Hmm. Huh. Talk about nostalgia. It also helps us kind of overestimate what we remember. No, 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 no. I don't you may see may have it a that warped way. sense of what no. actually happened. You're like, Ripped. wow, I was a good athlete. Ripped. Really? You were probably not the guy. You Alternative facts. They called me Reggie like after Reggie Jackson. Because I, you got a lot of wedgies? Is that why? No, no, no. Reggie. Oh, I see. Reggie. Mm-hmm. Ah, nostalgia. Good stuff, folks. Well, continue the journey with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. The whole gang will be back next hour for more fun, more ideas to help you live longer and love stronger. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with uh, Terry and Jeff, uh, Terry South, Jeffrey Simpson. The gang is all here. We are locked and loaded. One mission. We have one purpose. I will be your leader and I will lead you into war. That is what we're talking about today. What? We have a great uh, interview today with a guy named Chris Fussell who wrote the book One Mission, How Leaders Build a Team of Teams. Fussell also wrote a book called Team of Teams with Stanley McChrystal, General Stanley McChrystal, who went in and revamped the entire military uh, in Afghanistan and I think in Iraq as well and um, made some incredible changes in the middle of the war back when we thought we were losing that war or nothing was happening. And he literally turned the whole thing around. And we have one of the authors of that book. Um, and he's going to be talking to us about how leaders build teams. It's it really it's a it's an interview we we did uh, because he couldn't he couldn't come on during the show, so we taped it after the show one day. 
awesome, awesome interview about leadership. You won't want to miss it. We will get to that, of course. So when you think about it, leadership and also pythons, big part of the show today, pythons. Mm. There was a python hunt in Florida. Oh, I thought you meant the one in the New York subway last night. Holy cow, was there really? Well, there were some handlers on the subway, so yeah. they just kind of let the their python that they had uh, just kind of crawl through the you know the handholds on oh, the yeah. subway, just crawling from one to another, and people were like recording it. And if, <laughs> if you made a donation to the, uh, the Habitat trains. Preserve, they, they, they'd let you hold the, the snake. Eh, I'm good. <laughs> Oddly enough, this story has nothing to do with Samuel L. Jackson. Weird. Yeah. That is so strange. Because he, he's really big into snakes and really big into snakes in planes, snakes in cars. Yeah. I don't think – has he ever done snakes on trains? No. There is some Oscar buzz surrounding his latest snakes movie. It's not the snake action movie that we're all so used to. It's the uh, snakes in a courtroom. Snakes over Madison – or what? Madison County? Bridges of uh, Madison County? Yeah. Bridges snakes? Yeah. That's good. But snakes in a courtroom. Snakes over <laughs> – Bridges of Madison County. He's actually defending a snake in the movie. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? In court. Oh, wow. So he's actually turned very pro-snake. He used well, to be very well, anti-snake. You know, he has to – every once in a while you have to make movies – or he makes the snakes on a whatever movies so that he can make these smaller independent films. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. That totally makes sense. Um, we'll get to that fun. Plus, a man proposes to a girlfriend in front of the Pope – by the way, the Pope, did hmm? you notice he, the Pope had a shiner? Yeah, he got a little accident. <gasps> he got a little Pope mobile accident, but he's okay. He's such, I, and again, I have this really great affinity for this man because he was from Argentina and I lived in Argentina for two years and I just, I don't know, he just seems so wonderful. And I'm so grateful that Sean Spicer finally got to visit him after he was, <laughs> after he was dissed by President Trump. No, Spicy. I know you're a Catholic. I know this means a lot to you. No, you don't get to meet the Pope with the rest of us. Come on, man. Uh, I guess Spicer, by the way, jokingly said he wants a little bit of uh, – he wants some of the Emmy that What's-Her-Name won for oh, – Melissa McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy won for playing Spicy. Spicy Spice. Sounds fair. She'll, she can get him a pack of gum or something. What you do is you just take that Emmy and you just cut it right down the middle. That's biblical. Totally. And then we'll see who really wants the Emmy. <laughs> Such a Solomon's dilemma. Uh, we got all of that straight ahead. Plus, um, I really want to uh, – we'll get into empty news. But there's nothing empty about it because it's full of snakes and other things. Um, but first, let's get to the real headlines. Find out from Terry South what we should be paying attention to. Terry, what's up around the country? The death toll from Hurricane Irma has climbed to 22 in the United States following the path of destruction across the Caribbean and into the southeastern regions of the United States over the weekend. While power has been restored to over 2 million customers in Florida, by midday Tuesday, Florida Power and Light has restored power to 2.3 million customers, which was 40% of those affected across the state. At least 4.7 million customers in Florida still without power. Uh, the company said its customers on the state's east coast should expect po- most power to be restored by about September 17th, while customers on the state's west coast should expect most power to be restored by September 22nd. Like 4.4 million people. Yeah. I mean, this is... Just think of that's that's a lot of people that can't blow their hair dry. Families will get to know each other. Yeah, but that's crazy. And by the way, that's in the U.S. Yeah. 
And plus, we're not we're not even talking um, Houston. I don't know if power is still out down no. there in places. What about the what about the Caribbean? Right. What about just nuts? The storm is huge. Mm-hmm. Earlier this year, Russian President Vladimir Putin proposed a reset of relations between the U.S. and Russia across all major branches of government. This, according to a report out of BuzzFeed News, according to documents detailing in the proposal, a Russian diplomat asked the U.S. State Department for an immediate restoration of diplomatic, military, and intelligence channels that had been severed after Russia intervened in Ukraine and Syria. The documents reportedly show a proposal for several meetings between the two countries to discuss areas of mutual interest. It just ignores everything that caused the relationship to deteriorate and pretends that the election interference in the Ukraine crisis never happened says uh, Angela sent a former national uh, intelligence officer on Russia during the George W. Bush administration. Mm. When the Russians submitted the proposal, they were under the impression that Trump would do what he said he would do, make a deal with Putin and normalize relations. Wow. And then everything went nuts and Trump can't do that. Trump can't do that. There was some, th- some there, was, there was that rumor of a meeting off the island, off Italy, yeah, that they yeah. were going to have this sort of back channel to Moscow type of, and that whole thing kind of fell apart because of probably the Russia investigation and all that focus on it. Yeah. So yeah, they, they tried, but no not, not going to happen. Apple on Tuesday introduced a new line of smartphones in the iPhone 8, 8 Plus, and the, X. it says X, but it's 10. Hmm iPhone 10, yeah, it's, it's just so a it's 10. So it's iPhone 10. X is more mysterious, But everyone's though. going to call it the X, but they yeah. want it to be called 10, so I think they should put a 10 well, if they want it to be a 10, but they're calling it an X. If you're divorced, the X has a totally different connotation. Ooh, that's right. true. The iPhone 8 series phone will be a, will feature glass on both front and back, have wireless charging available, and water-resistant technology. Both the 8 and the 8 Plus will be available September 22nd. What's, ah. what's the so, point of the glass on both sides? Well, that way they can charge you twice as much if it breaks. The but, glass, on, you have to have glass on the back so that you can do the inductive charging by just setting it on a on, but, a, on the table instead of having to plug it in the wall. But now it's like 10 times more likely to shatter. It is, as they said, incredibly strong glass. The strongest glass ever to be put on a phone that you'll drop and break immediately. Uh, Trump's seen stronger. Additionally, the company announced the iPhone X, pronounced 10, executives wanted to make clear, the <laughs> honor of the 10th anniversary of Apple's famed smartphone, the X, which will be high-priced, 1000 bucks. And then yeah. no, it, no, 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 nine ninety nine. Well, they're doing nine ninety nine. But if you get the the most memory and the the yeah. highest, it's like fourteen hundred bucks. It's crazy. Uh, it will not feature a home button. It will use facial recognition technology to unlock it. The ten is the biggest leap forward since the original iPhone. Says CEO Tim Cook. So the phone uses. It has all these infrared yeah. scanners that shoot your face, like 30,000 or something, right. they said, and that unlocks your phone. Well, let me just be real about that. It's already If, if you already have a little self-esteem issue, hmm. what happens when you wake up in the morning and your phone doesn't recognize you? Right. They well, said it doesn't sad. matter if you change your hair. It doesn't matter if you wear a hat. What if it matters Low if, light? You, like if you haven't done your makeup and your eyebrows aren't on yet? I don't know. Hey, you just got zapped in the face yesterday. Holy cow. We got to talk about that. Dermatologist, man. I love my dermatologist to death. But he's like, you know what? You just have a little thing right here. Let's just let's just zap that. Oh, all right. And I'm thinking, You're like, all I'm right, sorry, that's yeah. my nose. Just zap it off. Just a quick zap. And he pulls this thing that's plugged into the wall mm-hmm. with a really sharp wire needle on the end of it and flipping electrocutes me. Okay. Taze it. And the smell of you. Me. <laughs> <laughs> and and my eyes are watering and 
He's like, yeah, I'm really sorry. I, yeah. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry. That's I just, too much. I, yeah. I mean, sometimes we'll deaden it before we do this, but I just thought we'd do it quick. And I'm like, well, quick electrocution. So now I have like burn marks on my face. Wow. What you do nowadays? Just for beauty. Just for <laughs> cancer avoidance. Beauty Fine. is a, it's a, that's a far reach. Finally, the Cleveland Indians on Tuesday tie the American League record for consecutive wins, defeating the Detroit Tigers 2 nothing. the team's 20th straight win, tying the 2002 Oakland A's uh, record, the uh, Indians' overall record, 89-56. and The team sits atop the American League Central Division. The Indians won the American League pennant in 2016, but lost to the Chicago Cubs in the World Series. So ah, hoping. Yeah. Hoping they can actually turn this into something, but 20 in a row. The Indians are killing it. See, I actually loved that series, not just because everybody was rooting for the Cubs, but no matter which team won, a team that hadn't won in 100 years was going to win. So that was exciting. Yeah. I, I agree. And let's just do a quick update while we're here with the Dodgers. How are the Dodgers doing? They finally ended their 11-game losing streak. And have they really ended it? And we won't know until the next game. And yeah. they've clinched a playoff berth. See, well, that was ne- that should never have been in doubt if they had just is, been winning. Is the choir too much for the story? Yeah, no, too does, much to does it, the choir. Does it actually deserve the Mormon so, Tabernacle Choir? But this is—they did lose 15 out of 17 games. I know it's pitiful. Mm. It's horrible. You know what I would do if I were you? If I were a Dodger fan, and I really actually am, but I don't—I'm not into anything anymore. I'm just trying to stay alive. Okay, um, I would have them just send a message, tweet them. And tell the whole team, go watch the Indians play. Yeah, do do more of that. <laughs> do what do more of what the Indians are doing. See what see what they're doing there. They're winning. Yeah. Now go out and do that. Hey, go do that. I mean, really, that that's some pretty good winning. Now I think they're frustrated to say the least. But it does say something about them that they were so far ahead of every other team that they could lose fifteen games and still have still be the best team in baseball. Mm. I mean, record-wise. Record That's true. Record but, wise. I mean, boy, what would they be if they had actually been winning the last They would have been on games. par to have probably the greatest record ever in baseball. Mm-hmm. But, but they blew it. But maybe, but hey, hey, maybe something can change. Something can change. Um, I wanted to ask you guys about I, – I know when I look at you two, um, when I look at Jeff, when I look at, uh, when I look at Terry, I think romantics – that's what I think. Two romantic guys, wow. so full of mm-hmm. love. Mm. Yeah, so full of love, so full of joy. I want to know what you guys um, – I want to know how you proposed to your wife. How did you propose to the, the love of your life? Jay? Well, we went to a restaurant. Yeah. Uh, the one I wanted to go to was closed. Oh, Arby's? Like, not like closed for the day, like shut down and not existing anymore. Yeah. Um, so we had to go find some other place. We found another place. It was Taco fine. Bell. And uh, no, it was an Italian place. It was oh, good. Oh, Italian. It's like local Italian. It wasn't oh, one of these Sparrow, national Sparrow chains. Pizza? So we go in and, you know, you're eating your whatever, ravioli, spaghetti, uh-huh. whatever. Oh, yeah. And um, I, I said, I, I really uh, appreciate the time we've spent together. I, I like think you we've a grown lot. closer. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, I just wanted to give you this. And I gave her, um, you know those plastic squirt rings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave her one of those. 
Oh. And um, she was kind of confused. And I went, no, just kidding. I, and, I, and I had them like in ring boxes. Oh, so you're pulling a joke out. And right so here. I gave her another ring box and it was a smiley face ring. Yeah. Okay. So she's like. Back to the. And then huh. you, you brought out all the legal work, the legal papers. The prenup. And you said, yeah. if you could just sign this, <laughs> sign I brought this. my notary public with me. We can get this done tonight. What's <laughs> and, it going to take to get you to marry me tonight? And then because I really didn't have a plan, we ended up at a park. Oh. And uh, I, gave her, I gave her, her her ring there. Did you kneel? Yeah. Attaboy. Absolutely. That's, see, that's romantic. I mean, except for the jokes and the rings. Yeah. And the, she liked that, though. She still has them. Does she? Yeah, she found it endearing. Yeah, she's sentimental. Yeah. She's nostalgic. Okay, Jeffrey, give us your love. So um, I flew up to Seattle, surprised her. She thought I was just there to see her for the weekend. And uh, I then proceeded to recreate a an evening of places that we visited in Seattle. And I had created a, what are those, uh, Shutterfly books, right? Oh, wow. And they, by the time I gave it to her, she was flipping through, and it was basically the story of our courtship. And each of the places that we had been to that night were in the book. It also included a CD of me announcing on the radio that I was going to propose to her. Holy! By the way, wow! Do you see all the effort he went to? Sure. He like. What if she said no? Yeah, she'd have a That'd book. That'd be embarrassing. It wasn't she'd have a memory book. <laughs> okay. So then we ended on the ferry. And I proposed to her on a ferry ride. Crazy thing was, her roommate heard my announcement on the radio. But the, what, Luckily, did not spill the beans to her. What were you doing on the radio? I was, what, what a, I was an intern at FM 100. Oh, soft hits. Less talk. Talk. <laughs> FM 100. Completely non-offensive radio. Completely non-offensive radio. We take a stand on nothing. <laughs> um, so did you kneel? <laughs> I did. You got to wow. kneel down. You got to kneel down. Did you ask your father before you did it? I did. I did that too. I forgot. My father and I, I was forgot like, to do that. He was kind of like, "What? Are, what are we doing?" Mine, go, mine still won't let me. He did that say down. yes, please. Yes, so I'm not sure what that. Meant. <laughs> please. <laughs> he goes finally. Just Can do you it. get her out of our basement, please? <laughs> Isn't that great? I by, mine was easy. I just went to this point that's a really popular point in Utah called Ensign Point Peak or Peak. Sorry, yeah, Ensign Peak. Uh, which is where the pioneers, when they came to Utah, they mapped out the entire valley. They go over there, be hmm. the airport. Yeah, they're going to have the, the airport freeway right, here. right This is where here. we'll build the NSA tech. Yeah, uh, the NSA supercomputer center super down computer here. Yeah. Center. And and then I I knelt and asked her to marry me and used the symbolism of we would someday build our own, you know. Wow. Map out our own future kind so of thing. You had symbolism with it? Yeah. You didn't just say, hey, this and we, is what we I had got. To hike. We had to kind of hike to ours. Oh, wow. Did you drag a uh, hand cart? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I dressed in pioneer garb. Okay. And I put her in a hand cart and just hmm. dragged her up a mountain. Did you simulate burying one of your own? Uh-huh. Okay. We did that. We, I simulated <laughs> childbirth. I simulated killing a bar. Burn some buffalo chips. Yep. Make it really authentic. We had a, a hot dog dinner burning <laughs> buffalo chips. It was so, so romantic. Um, but I forgot to ask her dad. So then that day yeah. we went to announce the big thing. Hey, we're getting married. La, la, la. Here's the ring. We had known each other since high school. Right. And she, you know. Still, I mean. She you know. was way after me. Not to brag. But um, no, she wasn't. So, but <laughs> then he's like, well, ho, 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 ho. Didn't you forget to ask me? Hmm. There's a, there's a common courtesy here. Yeah. So we haven't talked 
ever since. Right back in the day, you have to show up. Yeah. With whatever cows, or he had to give you cows. Yeah. How did that work? Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, however yeah. that system works. So, yeah. I mean, Why did you ask me how did that work? I don't work? know. It's just back in the day. Maybe you know back somebody. In, not back in my day. Not in the <laughs> 70s. Man. I don't know. I wasn't around. Hey, uh, so check this out. Dario Ramirez and his wife, Mary Angel, es- Mary Angel Espinal, mm. uh, met in a church a year and a half ago. And um, they then... Uh, somehow got a, a viewing before the Pope, right? And an audience with the Pope. And because Espinal is a, he's a former lawmaker from Venezuela and a political exile. So the Pope wanted to meet him. So when you meet the Pope, you what? You might have like three minutes and they kind of hurry you oh, along yeah, yeah. down the line. Well, when Ramirez got there and met in front of the Pope, spent a few minutes chatting it up with the Argentine pontiff. And uh, then about all the upheaval in Venezuela. And, you know, uh, Espinal, the, the uh, Maria Angel, she didn't know what was going on. And the next thing you know, Ramirez kneels down in front of the Pope, oh. turns to this woman, and he explained to the Holy Father that the woman next to me is the woman of my life. I met her in church, that God put her in my life, and I want to propose to her. So I got down on one knee and asked right in front of the Pope. The Pope was so impressed, he said, um, he, he, oh, no, that's not what he said. That sounded weird. <laughs> he said, wow. So, uh, I mean, uh, that's the, the, the fiance was like, wow, can't believe you're doing this in front of the Pope. Anyway, he was, the, the Pope was impressed and smiled and took a picture with him and lots of love. Doesn't that just wow. put a lot of pressure on her? Oh, yeah. This is like you go to the basketball game, you go up on the Jumbotron, someone asks uh, someone, you know, and no, then this they, might even be bigger than that. Like, that, that. Well, what do you do when she's like, sorry. Yeah. I have other plans. Right. <laughs> it's not you. It's me. But you know what else? They also will always kind of go down in wherever they are as the Catholic couple that proposed oh, yeah. in front of the Pope. Right. Which is probably going to be putting pressure on their faith for the rest of their lives. They don't. They couldn't convert to another religion. No. What if they're There's like – so much to live up yeah. to. Yeah. That'd be bad. I don't know. Anyway, that's pretty cool. Cool stuff. We've got, uh, we've got a lot to cover. We, we now know more about – the romantic nature of my co-hosts and myself. I think it's just fascinating. You can go Italian. You can make a book. You can have a, a really kind of symbolic plan about mapping of our lives. Or you can just go to the Pope and get engaged. Pick your poison, folks. There's one way to do it, and uh, you can always find yours. We'll continue the journey up next. A great interview on how leaders build a team of teams. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. All types of leaders feel the challenges of unifying their organization from CEOs of major companies to managers of fast food franchises. Military organizations are known for strict discipline and tight protocols, but they also work consistently to develop unity within their teams. And in 2004, the U.S. Navy SEALs organization needed a way to unify themselves against the threat of al-Qaeda. 
They infuse the agility, cohesion, and adaptability of their smaller teams into the entire SEAL organization. And the new organization, they created a, a standard on how to unify the team of teams. The model can be applied to any non-military organization. And uh, one person that was uh, behind it and played a big role in it was Chris Fussell, a former Navy SEAL leader, talks with us today about how the SEALs transformed their organization. Chris, thank you so much, first of all, for being with us, but maybe more importantly, for your 15 years of service. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And uh I'll, I'll accept that on behalf of all those that have worn the uniform. So great to be on this show. Honored to have you. And love, by the way, I'm a big uh, leadership. Uh, I love leadership. I've worked with Franklin Covey and spent a lot of time with Stephen Covey. And so I know a good leadership book when I see it. And boy, did you did you do something amazing here? I mean, I guess just having a foreword written by General Stanley McChrystal, that's pretty powerful in and of itself. But more importantly than that, you got to work with him on on his book, Team of Teams. Is this is this just kind of the next offshoot off of Team of Teams or or, or is this kind of a, a completely different approach? It is a, there's a direct relationship between Team of Teams and One Mission. And what we were trying to do in Team of Teams was outline sort of a broad theory of the case. Here, here are the changes that are going on around the world as we collectively move into the information age. And here's what we did in the military to sort of adjust to that reality. And we've gotten a lot of, uh, you know, feedback, positive feedback over the last several years since Team of Teams came out and some questions saying, okay, well, we buy the theory of the case, but how do we actually do it? So one mission is designed to offer a, a roadmap to leaders at every level that say, look, here's, here are the major areas that you should be thinking about if you want to move down this road, both at a, at a process level and then sort of in the broader environmental uh, consideration so that, that leaders in a, any different sector can look at their space and say, okay, We'll, we'll apply the lessons of one mission, and we can actually create this sort of change model inside of our enterprise. Mm. Because it is – it's hard. I mean it's hard to be a manager, a leader anyway. But then – I mean I can't imagine being a Navy SEAL team leader. But you were also able to actually create more efficient teams, smaller teams. And I guess in this efficiency, I mean – this is live or die. This is make or break. Uh, what are some of the principles that you used to, to, to get it down to make it more efficient? Well, the broad principle would be, you know, any, anybody that's been in a, a great organization knows that the core strength often is at the small team level. I mean, that's, that's very right. much in our, human, in our human nature, right? You, you put 8, 10, 12 talented people into a room or on a, you know, counterterrorism assault unit, whatever the case may be, they'll do amazing things together. And with that wasn't our core issue. And it's often not the core issue in, in, in a great enterprise. You know, you go down to the front line and you find a great sales team or a great marketing team. It's how you connect all those things at, as an enterprise that, that's the challenge. And, you know, the military was no different. So the broad principle was how can we leverage the, the core sort of norms and strengths of those small special operations units that, that communicate in a very transparent manner, that, that adapt to situations very quickly, that do all these things that we, that we know small teams are capable of. If we could operate like that as an enterprise, we, you know, we'd get amazing things done. So we started to, you know, the, 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 we being you know, our very senior leadership is where this started, they started adjusting the way we communicated to try to model the behavior of those, those small teams that we knew were so capable. And so that's that's really the translation that we, we try to bring over to organizations as well. And, I mean, yeah, agile, small, 
Um, it, it looks like, and I've always wondered, you know, it, our, our organizations are are big. These are huge companies. Remember the the too big to fail kind of organizations. So I, I always wondered if it's possible to to make the change. And we always kind of assume the change has to come from the top down. But in a way, what you're kind of saying is it really is going from the small team up. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a two-way relationship, really. I mean, this started with our senior leadership saying, what we're doing isn't working. And, and that's not the fault of the individuals or the small teams that we're putting out there into the field. It's, and it, arguably, it's not anyone's fault. It's, it's the reality that the, the structures of the organization that we're in were built in a different era, just like any right. other enterprise right now that's dependent on traditional bureaucratic norms and methodology, those systems were built in the 20th century under, you know, very thoughtful hands over, you know, a hundred year period. Now the world has shifted. The information age creates different sorts of interconnected, fast changing problems that traditional bureaucratic models simply aren't designed to handle. And that's the reality we faced. And so the, 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 the drive for change started at the senior leadership, but Part of their narrative that they were telling us was, we understand and recognize that we have to find a way to hear from those frontline teams in as near real time as possible about what's happening on the ground so that we can collectively synchronize as a small team does naturally. So we can become a series, thus the title of our first book, Team of Teams. We need to be as interconnected as distributed teams as you would find on you know an eight person unit going out into the field. Hmm. We're we're speaking with Chris Fussell, um, who is the author, New York Times uh, co author of the New York Times bestseller Team of Teams, and now he's got his own book, One Mission: How Leaders Build a Team of Teams, uh, which he wrote with C. W. Goodyear and General Stanley McChrystal wrote the foreword. It's uh, when 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 you think about the 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 outline of the book, do you do you actually remember? the Navy SEAL team stories that are behind the principle you're teaching. Is it that connected in your head? Uh, no, it, it absolutely is. I mean, that's, um, you know, I had a, uh, a, a professor in graduate school tell me one time that if, you'll know if you, have, uh, if you have an idea, if it's the only thing you think about for, for the rest of your life. Mm, there you go. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I was very fortunate in my, my career. I, I, stumbled into uh, a few positions that gave me the perspective to see how this uh, organizational change was taking place. And, you know, it's, it's sort of all I've been thinking about for the last 10 years. And we've seen it in the military. We've seen it. We're now seeing it in in industry, how this problem is manifesting. We're seeing it in big other systems, healthcare, uh, you know, large education systems, um, you know, the way the cities are run, the way nation states interact with each other. This problem is, is the new reality that I think our generation has to figure out how to deal with. And, and really who better to do it than, the guys, you know, on those front lines, but which, which, by the way, they're all intelligent, smart, amazing, highly trained people. But then it gets back to the real leadership principles. What what traits do you do you see that are so successful, essential on the on the team level? What what traits have to be there? Well, we we, we lay out a few in the work we do. Uh, organizational uh, sort of cultural characteristics that are critical for this. Um, the, the key underpinning um, is, the, is the idea of trust, right? So 
if you if you look at the way I, I, what we faced as a new sort of threat were large networks of humans, right? Terrorist networks that spanned the world. That's not new. Networks have always been around, but in the information age, they can scale to these amazing levels, right? No, just numbers-wise, where formerly it was very hard to connect people around the world with any level of secrecy. Right? Communications just didn't work like that. But in the information age, you know, you can connect with millions of people very quickly if they want to listen to your idea. So suddenly these these networks were the, were the, were the ultimate uh, trouble that we were facing on the, on the battlefield. And networks, good ones, are underpinned by sort of a common vision and trust. So organizations, that's a, that's a critical underpinning. If they want to be able to move fast in the information age, you have to have high levels of trust and common purpose, that we call it, um, so that everybody knows the intent. Then from, from there, you can move up into these higher ideals that we, that we title uh, shared consciousness, which is everyone has a sense of the most relevant information at this very moment so that we all have a, a shared optic on what data is important. Then you can get into the final, that really the coin of the realm would, for us, which was empowered execution, decentralizing down to those frontline teams and giving them the autonomy to operate quickly but knowing that they're going to do it in line with the the overarching strategy of the organization. Hmm. Boy, and we just hear story after story, you know, organizational issues. For example, United Airlines whole fiasco pulling uh, one of their um, one of their patrons off of an airplane and and some of the problems that that obviously created. And so so when you think of empowered execution, how many times have we heard uh, somebody at maybe on a on a customer service level say, yeah, sorry, we can't do that. We don't do that here. But you're saying you, these people have to be empowered enough to make changes and make adjustments and and do so with with accuracy and and immediacy quickness. That's exactly right. Um, our, our leadership started to constantly remind us that, uh, look, win, winning, just saying we're going to win, that's not enough anymore. We're going to assume you're good enough to win. We have to change ourselves as a culture if we're going to be able to move with the speed and autonomy that we require. And so they started talking to us about the, the cultural shift that we were going to make and let the winning sort of be the second order effect of that. And to your point, they said, you know, the first thing that you should have in your mind every single day is grounded in relationships. Networks are driven on relationships. Therefore, we need to be driven on relationships. So you need relationships with, with one another, these different units that used to be historically competitive with each other. You need to start to trust each other and, and develop genuine relationship with external partners, intelligence groups, host nation armies like the, the Iraqi forces that we were partnered with. All of those relationships are the critical underpinning. So the United example is a great one to think if, if you flip that or you could go back in time and say, look, primary in the, the mind of that frontline person needs to be relationship with the consumer, right. with your, your flyer that trusts you to, to, to give you their business. And you can see I'm, I'm about to de seriously degrade this relationship. I got to fix that first and give them autonomy to figure it out in the moment. And, you know, th th that's an obvious, very acute example, but, you know, millions of dollars could be saved by, by decentralizing the actions and trusting one person that's closest to that issue to make quick adjustments and save the relationship. That is amazing because, I mean, it's also, 
it's a financial decision. So a lot of companies say they want to empower people. But, I mean, I get empowering a SEAL officer to be able to pretty much do whatever they want to do. But you guys are bringing in airplanes. It's still costing. You could make tens of thousands of dollars of decisions in a second and or millions probably of dollars of decisions. But that's the I guess that's the bigger part of trust, right? Leaders need to be able to be make sure everyone's got common purpose. We all are thinking and feeling similarly and we're empowered to make the big decision. And then when they make the big decision, I guess we've got to make sure we made the right decision and learn. That, no, that's exactly right. And and that's one of the things we try to, to, to address in one mission is it's not enough anymore just to have the right human capital. So, you know, the military is able to you know, train and select some really, really competent folks. So you, you assume the human capital is good, but a lot of industries like that. Yeah. You also have to give them the avenue uh, through, through process and structure to really understand the intent of the organization. Because even your highest performers, if they get to the point on that front edge of where the problems are changing very quickly, and they hit, they, they hit a critical point where they realize, I don't know what the plan is anymore. I don't understand what our senior leadership is thinking. They will either take an action, and then you're sort of flipping the coin, right, whether right. it's going to be high risk or not. Or most will just take a knee and say, I'm going to, there's a thing I could do right now, but I'm not sure that it's in line with our intent, so I'm going to take a knee and not do it. Mm. So, and, and in a fast-moving problem, that inaction can lead to, you know, as yeah. we all know now, like multiple second and third order really negative effects. No one's done anything wrong, right. but the problem's still getting away from you. Yeah, and, we, and they didn't do anything right, and there's still viral messages that can go out, and it can still drop your stock price a billion dollars in a day. So, I mean, these are this is exactly. big. This is big time stuff, and it does it parallels very well with I think what you've done with the, the Navy SEALs as well. Let's um, let's let's come back, continue the journey more with Chris Fussell in his book One Mission: How Leaders Build a Team of Teams. And uh, we'll continue to learn as we go in the journey how we take the principles, the learnings from the Navy SEAL teams and roll them up uh, into our own organizations. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Again, honored to have Chris Fussell with us. Uh, Chris served... Uh, with the Navy SEALs for 15 years, um, but uh, I guess more importantly, um, not even more importantly, he also um, has written a book with General Stanley McChrystal. The book is called Team of Teams. It was a New York Times bestseller. And Chris also has written um, another book, One Mission, How Team Leaders Build a Team of Teams. He's uh, He's been deeply involved in helping the United States uh, retrain, I think, re redesign, reorganize, redevelop um, some of our fighting capabilities in order to fight against Al Qaeda and the Navy SEAL units were um, were the, the the front line, not of the not just of the fight, but also of the learning of how to restructure our military and our organization. Chris, thank you again for your time and being with us. No, thank you. Great discussion. So when we talk about uh, taking this the tight knit kind of unit of that we see with the Navy SEALs and moving it 
um, up into kind of an entire organizational structure, it seems like that is going to be ripe with problems. Uh, other silos that might be created, um, structure and hierarchy. How how do you go about taking the principles and making them a part of the culture of the organization? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting this sort of culture discussion. That is absolutely at the core of what we experienced and what we'll, the work we now do at the McChrystal Group with, with organizations. It very much focuses on culture, but we didn't start there, and we don't start there necessarily in the work we do with organizations uh, in every case. We started with changing our process around how we communicated with the intent of decentralizing very aligned decision-making authorities to those teams that were closest to a constantly changing threat. Hmm. Right? So that's sort of the, the quick bumper sticker that I think our leaders had in mind. What we found was that moved us toward a much more transparent, inclusive, and higher cadence, so much more rapid communication structure. Because essentially, if we wanted the enterprise to operate like a a small team, what we found was, in in, in the end, everybody was talking every day, right? Mm -hmm. So we we started living on these 24-hour cycles where the first 90 minutes would be a global video teleconference with thousands of people on the net. And that over time, felt very much like me, you, and six other people sitting in a room hmm. at a small startup or a small team and just saying, okay, here's the plan. What are we doing today? So we were all synchronized. We developed a sense of shared consciousness. Then you could decentralize for the remaining portion of that day, the next 22 and a half hours, was a window of empowered execution. So that process side is where our leaders started. Now, it has to be based on deep alignment on strategy. What are we actually trying to accomplish? But those are the big building blocks that we'll start with with organizations with, with admittedly up front saying this will drive a culture shift in the organization and develop a new type of leader that's comfortable leading in the information age, becoming a digital leader, becoming a much more lead from the middle toward sort of personality that, that sees their organization as a, as a network as much as a traditional bureaucracy. But I'm a big believer that lots of culture extends from process. How you run the organization is going to define who you are as a culture. Yeah. Well, and boy, such a different approach where normally, you know, the headquarters has all the information and it doesn't ever trickle down. It's never communicated down. Um, So no one on the bottom level of the organization can seemingly make the decisions unless the decision was ordered. And anything that was adaptive or changing real time, you were just left blind. So I guess what you're saying is get get communication open, have a maybe a larger group type of meeting where everybody can can hear the latest thinking can almost become trusting of each other, understanding of the data, sharing the same consciousness and then uh, um, and have the same purpose, and then allow people to operate fairly independently at at their level, but accountably. No, that's that's right. Um, you can you, you definitely build in rules around accountability and 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 very methodically cascading decision making rights down into the organization. I mean, a lot of that is just sleeves up work. Yeah. But the the overarching process, you, you're exactly right, and it's critical, I think, for 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 leaders to. Remember, if, that, if, if you start going down a road like that, when you're synchronizing with a large group, it shouldn't be a traditional bureaucratic approach, which says, okay, here's the latest numbers and earnings, and we're going to cascade direction down 
to the to the front lines. For us, those conversations were inverted. When those when those windows opened up, we got 90 minutes to resynchronize our organization. It started from the bottom. It was a bottom-up Fed mm. discussion because our leaders approached that with great humility. I mean, it was, that was part of the critical culture shift that we went through was just a servant leadership mentality that said, I understand the complexity going on out there. Let's start with the ground-level units. You tell us what's changed in the last 24 hours. Holy Reset up to what the, what the new reality is on the ground. And then we'll react to that and try to set a tone for the next 24 hours. Now, we were on a very aggressive cycle, but you can do that on a weekly cadence, on a monthly cadence, whatever makes sense for your organization. But it starts with a humility-based approach to say, frontline leaders, tell me what you're seeing right now. How, but, and how really, I mean, that just seems like a no-brainer, right? But that is so opposite of how we run companies. It's always more top-down, and then we see example after example of – the the people on the front line knowing really what is going on real time and and then two to have the support of your leadership knowing that you're bringing them the eyes of the organization and then help letting the leadership help you solve those problems daily that's powerful no you're right and it is it is obvious you know it's it's but we so don't do it yeah but most people don't do it it's obvious because any of us that have been on a great small team that's how they work, yeah. right? Who was closest to the past? Who, was, who ran the play that didn't work or did work? Let's start there, right? right. But then at a certain point in, in pre-information age, scaling that behavior was very difficult. So one of the things we try to lay out in one mission is uh, just a quick chapter on the history of bureaucracy inside of industry that goes, you know, it has a, a very known history. And they weren't created as evil things. And we don't espouse that they're entirely evil. We actually recommend a, a hybrid model between bureaucracy and network, right? And bureaucracy was created to, uh, you know, to allow scale, you know, right. pre-information age. There was no other way to do it, but hey, we've got to get ourselves organized, right? But they didn't allow for that sort of collective behavior that you see on a, on a small team. So to your point, it's in our DNA and it seems very natural, but we don't, groom ourselves to lead like that at a senior level. And everyone's just much more comfortable in a traditional hierarchy to say, I'm just going to tell the people underneath me what to do, right? So give me the numbers, give me the strategy, give me the forecast, and I'll just give, give a bunch of orders out into the field. And that works really well for a long time. It just it doesn't work now. Right. The organizations need to shift. Well, and it also demands an entire, entirely different level of accountability um, on at at just the, at the at the bottom level because and I guess at all levels because you, you can't just keep blaming your leaders for your mistakes in this model you your job is to influence the change your job is to influence the model so uh, I, I guess we'd have to get used to being more accountable no, it's exactly right and it's, it's an interesting point because a lot of organizations senior leaders when they first hear this will think well, it sounds kind of chaotic, like everyone's just running around doing their own thing, which is not true at all. I mean, this was, this was a very, very high accountability model because there was so much transparency in the system. So everybody knew what everybody was doing, as opposed to a bureaucracy where maybe only your boss knows what you're doing at any given moment, right? This opened the whole system up. So there was, a, there was multi-directional accountability, and everyone was under the lens all, all the time. And so... To, to a point you made earlier, it was the first time I'd ever experienced 
um, being held accountable to things that I should have done but chose not to, as opposed to things I did that went wrong or didn't went well. Normally, that's what we talk about. Right. This allows an organization to even take that one step further back and say, you should have done this. All the information was there. Why didn't you? And if we, because that's what's really important in a fast-moving sort of networked problem. It's the actions you don't take that are often the most, uh, most critical, right? And so that's where a whole different level of accountability got put inside of the organization. Yeah. In, in your book, One Mission, How Leaders Build team, a Team of Teams, um, how, how have you seen this, this new model of, you know, of, of leading um, a team? How has it changed and how did it change you and the people you work with at their ability to be engaged, their ability to want to be involved and 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 their connection to the team and the goal, how did it change it on the more personal level? It, it That was probably the most powerful part that I experienced personally, and it's the most powerful part I've seen industry adopt when I've seen organizations go down this model. And uh, try to lay out a, a case in, in one mission that says, look, we, we all want to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves, that we think has a meaningful impact on the planet. And, and we want to be part of something we feel has legacy and purpose, right? We've always had that. That's, that's, that's why we're very tribal in our nature, right? Why we want to be part of big systems that, are, that, that, that we think have, have meaning. And Bureaucracy isn't good at creating that. Bureaucracy is good at putting a poster on the wall and says, you know, here's our corporate logo or slogan, but it's not good at, you know, really driving a deep down purpose. And we were no better. I mean, the the military, inside the special operations, we had high meaning and purpose inside the small teams, but but as an enterprise, it was pretty shallow. Hmm. And what our leadership did was change that story for us and said, hey, wait a second, we're all part of a much bigger story. And this narrative is something you're going to want to be part of. This narrative is about culture change. It's about becoming a, you know, a globally interconnected tribal unit that feels real cohesion across thousands of people around the world that can be just as powerful, if not more powerful, than what you feel on your 10-person element. And here's why what we're doing matters. Here's why this is bigger than any one of us. And that's what got us out of bed in the morning. And we had a daily reminder as we synchronized around the world to say, wow, I, this really is amazing. This is a, I'm part of a movement right now, and I want to make this thing better every single day. And, you know, that's a, that's a leadership challenge because leaders have to have that conversation with, you know, a regularity with their organization if it's going to take effect. But once it gets up and running, to your point, I mean, that, that is a massive shift that can fundamentally change the culture of an enterprise. Absolutely. And and finally create engagement again, which is which is such a hard thing to to get in our people today. Like you were saying, they want the purpose, they need the purpose, but a lot of times we're just not built to bring the purpose. Well, Chris, we appreciate you. Chris Fussell's his name and the name of the book, One Mission, How Leaders Build a Team of Teams. You're going to want to get it, folks. It, it really is. It's taking the lessons from the Navy SEALs 
and uh, and helping us all understand how to, to to build a tight-knit group and then actually a tight-knit large organization if we if we so desire. That's uh, that's why we bring you these ideas to help you become a better leader, to help you uh, create more engagement in your life. We'll take a break and continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. The MT News Team, first on the scene, fifth on facts. Welcome back, friends. That Apple sound just keeps coming back to you. It's now time for Empty News with, of course, the Empty News anchor, Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Jeffrey? So uh, you teased this earlier about snakes. Yeah, but this is snakes. This was a snake hunt. Apparently, we're hunting pythons in Florida. Right. It it does not involve Samuel L. Jackson either. (laughs) So uh, here is the story. Hunters have killed 500 Burmese pythons during an elimination program in the Florida Everglades. Officials who are overseeing the program said that Miami snake hunter Jason Leon killed the 500th python, a 7-foot, 2-meter snake. Researchers say the snakes are decimating populations of native mammals and pose a threat to the Everglades restoration efforts. The hunters are are independent contractors who are paid $8.10 an hour to track and kill pythons. They earn $50 bonuses for pythons that measure up to 4 feet. Wow. Yeah. So listen to this. Yeah? And I would kill 500 snakes and I would kill 500 more You can hear him actually getting bit by the python. <laughs> Is that why they're making those noises? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. They've got their own theme song. How much would you uh, have to earn in order to kill pythons that are up to four feet? Mm, two million a year. Two million a year. Not eight bucks an hour? No way. Yikes. But eight bucks an hour, but then you then you want the $50 bonus. Oh yeah! Like you don't want you don't want no sissy python. So you, you maybe you want, you want to, maybe you want to pick them up and stretch them out a few more feet. <laughs> yeah. To, yeah, that'll work. That that sounds really gross, but but you plus it's twenty five dollars for any additional foot, right? So if you could get an eight foot python, you're in the money. Just put them in a stretcher, and uh, yeah, plus eight ten plus you know what? I bet you get some benefits. Maybe you get uh... to eat the meat. I doubt there's health insurance involved. Do you get to do you get to make the boots out of your? Oh yeah, python? the snakeskin boots. Mm, that'd be cool. Those are some big boots. You could make some uh, some great skins. There were some python boots. <laughs> Leon, that's good. Jason Leon did it all. Well, good. I'm glad somebody's doing it. And hey, making it safer for the people of Florida. Heaven knows they need it. Good stuff. We'll continue the journey up next, folks. More fun on the Matt Townsend show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends, and I uh, hope you're having a great day so far, making it a great one anyone. Anyway, uh, today we've got an incredible uh, show. We're going to revisit an interview that I did 
it's it's profound this this interview we did it uh, I don't know a year or more ago it's called uh, it's from a book Serengeti rules the quest to discover how life works and why it matters and um, in it we're going to talk about um, how come you know why there tends to be the right amount of fish in the sea or just the certain amount of cells in your body why the world is the way and operates in under the rules it operates under. It is so fascinating with a biologist, and he just basically teaches us some pretty incredible lessons. Um, and uh, that'll be coming up in a bit. And I, by the way, we need these rules because the rest of us don't – we don't obey the rules like we need to obey rules. I was always taught that there wasn't the right amount of fish in the sea but that there were plenty of other fish in the sea. Yeah. Well, that's after every breakup, right? Mom would say, hey, come on, Jeffy. There's other fish in the sea. Yeah. Every time you talk, we learn more about your childhood. <laughs> Good stuff. Jeff Simpson's joining me. Terry South is here. The gang's all here. And this hour, we, we're covering it all. We'll be, we're going to get into tattoos. Really? Yeah. Uh, there's a danger you might want to know about. Apparently, tattoos may cause cancer. I better call my brother. Really? Is he planning to get one? Does he have one? My oldest brother wanted to be rebellious. Yeah. But he didn't really want to get caught either. Right. So he went to a tattoo parlor and got just a tiny, maybe about a dime size uh, heart on his ankle. Really? Lame. A heart? Lame. It yeah. didn't even say mother on it. But I guess maybe he got a heart. So in case my mom found out, he could say, oh, I got it in honor of you. Or maybe that's where if you touch the heart, you can feel his most distal pulse. Interesting. The pulse farthest from his heart. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe he's just trying to make it easy for paramedics. So he's a wild child. Yeah, that's pretty <laughs> wild. But I mean, that's almost not enough ink because apparently it's the ink that is actually dangerous for you. Ah. The ink, when you get all inked up, that ink stays in your body. It's well, the, in your system. Well, then I'm scared because the other day at church, I turned around. There was this little baby that was sucking on one of our pens, on oh. one of our markers, but the cap was off. Yeah. No, that's it. <sighs> Too bad for the kid. Dang. And it was one of those, like, transparent markers, you mm, know, trans- where you color it and it looks oh, clear, but yeah. then there. So that's not, she might disappear. I doubt it. I doubt that's going to happen. I, I highly doubt it. I mean, she'll probably be poisoned, but maybe. By the way, Jimmy Carter's jumping in to, to tell Trump that he, you know, keep the peace. Jumping? Tell the truth. He's probably not doing much He's jumping. He's probably doing much days. jumping. Maybe he just sort of glides in. What, tripped in, Shuffle? slipped in, shuffled in? At that age, do you shuffle? Yeah. At okay. my age, I shuffle. Okay, so he shuffles in. Jumping in gives... I, uh... He was building a house on his way in. Yeah. He put a roof on a house and then showed up for the press conference. <laughs> Jimmy Carter's 92 years young. Yeah. Wow. And so he's, he's just... why? I mean, by the way, when you're 92, you just got to say... that's I'm excited for that. Because at 92... You're excited for 92? You can do whatever you want to do. You're you 92. Can. Yes, you can. You can think about doing a lot of things. No, but... you can say what you want to say. What oh. are they going to do? Leave you? Well, no, that's my question is the temperament of our current president. Yeah. How does he take this? 
advice from a former president. Well, you can. Does he point out that he, he was a one-term president? He, I'm that sure he, he would. That he was a failure as a president? Probably. Okay. Hmm. But none of that matters because he's also a Nobel Peace Prize winner, isn't he? Didn't He, didn't, he probably maybe. ought to be. Yeah. So he's the second oldest living president, right? Isn't yeah, after, uh, Bush uh, Sr. Yeah, a little I think, older? I think so. But you can say whatever – now, you know what? I'm going to say what I want to say. Hmm. By the way, John McCain, same thing. Yeah. Like what are you going to yeah, do? Yeah, he has a very different approach to life now that he has a tumor. Yeah, once yeah. you know you have a terminal illness, you're like, okay, here we go. Everybody buckle in And if I'm, I'm going to speak truth. If I'm still around at 92, I'm cracking open the ice cream bucket and I'm just going to wow. go until I hit the bottom. You'll, st- no, you'll still be on that diet. You will. I've got to lose three pounds. Yeah. The IRS will be after you, too, because you made so much money and haven't been reporting your diet money. Woody Allen said you could live to be 100 if you gave up everything that would make you want to live to 100. See, Woody knows. That's good stuff. That's really good advice. Okay. Why do you you say it that way? I don't know. I think it's all just genetics. Look at George Burns. Okay. Man smoked his entire life. Yeah. So. Unabashedly. Lived till he was, what, 90-something? Sure. But he also had a, a career he loved. Sure. He had a hacking I mean, cough. I think a lot of, of it has to do with genetics. He just kind of lived. have a hacking cough. There's people that work out every day and will have a heart attack. <laughs> uh, you're so – you're a pessimist. No, I'm, I think no. it's – I'm a realist. I wonder if he had tattoos. George I d- Burns. I don't know. Oh, he had the, the stamp. The you-know-what yeah. stamp on his back. Yeah. <laughs> just in the small of his back. I wonder what it was. I don't know, but it morphed over the years. That's so. the problem with a tattoo. It used to be an inch and it ended up as a foot. Not only could it possibly cause cancer, and we'll get into that, but it also apparently is whatever it is. Uh, I was talking to somebody and they know of somebody that has a giraffe on their body. Hmm. Yeah. A giraffe tat. A Hoping giraffe it tat. would make them taller? No. No, but the problem is... As that person ages, that long, lanky giraffe is going to turn into like a squatty bulldog. (laughs) So maybe they are inking friends on their bodies because that giraffe is going to grow right along with him. No, that giraffe is going to – its neck is going to sag. It's going to age along with him is what I should have said. Mm. Yeah, age. It will age for sure. Hmm. So we'll be talking about the dangers of tattoos uh, just, again, might cause cancer. It's a big deal. Worry about it. I mean, if you got a little heart on your ankle or if you have a little tattoo anklet, I don't know if I'd worry about it. An anklet? But if you've got like a big sleeve, yeah, that's a lot of ink in your system. And apparently the ink – this ink does run. <laughs> Through your veins. Or maybe just get one of those uh, tattooed sleeves, yeah. you know, clothing that has a tattoo on it. Or ah. the sticker tattoos that you can get for a quarter uh. at the gas station. <sighs> yeah. Nah. No need to get that. We'll also be talking about some other empty news today. Armed carjacking foiled when teen didn't know how to drive a manual transmission. Typical. Once again, kids, kids, mm. focus, Learn. Learn the art of the manual transmission. There is no greater transmission. Or just be more, you know, aware of what you're doing when you go to steal a car. Go, whoop, nope, there's a gear shift, got to hey, run. it has one of them stick things. There are also few greater joys 
than driving a manual transmission in a car. Few, few, I love it. Few greater joys in a car than driving a manual transmission. I even changed my video games to automatic. I just don't want to deal with it. Well, see, that's a sign you're aging. Yeah. Because I, I, to this day, in my car, I can turn it back to, like, manual mode. and Mine I, too. I pop in and out of that depending on the day, depending on the hour, depending on my need for speed. Yeah. I love down. There's no better feeling than downshifting, and all of a sudden you have a source of power mm. at your foot, and you just fly by that old lady in front of you, and then you see the cop, then you break, and yeah. then the old lady just smirks as she passes you. Wow, that was. You hit the old lady. Mm. Or did the old lady hit me? Oh. I guess we'll never know. Well, the police said it was me. Okay. <laughs> so, sorry. Sorry, lady. And she we shouldn't call her old. Experienced. Yeah. She was just a few years older than myself. Aged. Seasoned. Seasoned. Weathered. <laughs> wow, you are seasoned. Is that curry? Is that oregano? <laughs> Do I smell curry powder? Anyway, all of that straight ahead, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up that we should be paying attention to? Top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee said on Tuesday it was disappointed in uh, Facebook for not turning over critical information on Russia's attempts to promote anti-immigrant events on social media. Facebook acknowledges those attempts after uh, the website The Daily Beast first reported Monday on, on the influence campaign a week after it turned out over materials. Uh, over the committees because we're seeing more evidence of additional ads and how they are used to manipulate individuals. The Intelligence Committee is investigating Russia's meddling in the 2016 election. Facebook has pledged to cooperate with investigators. According to Reuters, the social media giant shared information about the Russians' attempts to, uh, with special counsel Robert Mueller. So now he's on board. Mueller? Mueller. Yeah. Hmm. So, boy, I mean, again, they're into everything. Yeah. Everything. He's got 20 lawyers. There's mafia lawyers. Uh, there's money laundering lawyers. Oh, who you calling a mafia lawyer? All kinds of people involved with this. So we'll see where it goes. Oh, wow. The U.S. Supreme Court Tuesday agreed with the Trump administration and issued an order effectively allowing the White House to bar about 24,000 refugees from entering the United States. The court granted a request to put a hold on earlier federal attempts uh, federal appeals court rulings that prevented the White House from applying President Trump's travel order to several thousand refugees who already signed contracts with resettlement agencies. Justice Anthony and Anthony Kennedy, not oh, Antonin Scalia, yeah. but Anthony uh, Kennedy had issued a temporary stay on the case a day earlier, though the one-page order issued Tuesday will block the appeals court ruling until further arguments can be made against it, and the uh, that'll be at the Supreme Court. Uh, October 10th. So okay. that's where this will go. The White House is considering dropping the refugee limit for the next year below the 50,000 quota that has been uh, seen, uh, has been at, since at least 1980. We've taken 50,000 refugees a year. They're looking to drop that number. The New York Times reports in a meeting Tuesday, Homeland Security officials reportedly suggested a limit of 40,000. There are a number of major refugee crises unfolding around the world. An estimated 5 million people have fled Syria. And recently, close to 400,000 people have left Myanmar due to what appears to be an unfolding genocide. Oh, no. These people need a place to go. But supporters of lower refugee admittance numbers argue that the most useful way to displace people isn't through having them come to America. 
Well, isn't this ironic? Because we're, I guess, going to turn away refugees. Places like Germany, some of these countries over there, that's the only way they can sustain themselves. Right. So they're building back up because they're not re- – yeah. there's not enough young people. So they're able to find them to kind of get their economy then boosted. Then young people aren't reproducing like they used right. to. Right. And another immigration news, Speaker Paul Ryan says in an AP interview today that deporting people brought to the U.S. illegally as children, not in America's interest. What? So the kid, the people protected yeah. by DACA, he goes, it's not in our interest to deport those people. We need those people. There you go. They're already citizens. Little 90% hint. have jobs. They're yeah. paying taxes. Maybe. Yet they have, they're not legal. Boy. Give them a path to citizenship. They've yeah. shown that they want to be here. They've shown they're trying to be productive in society. Don't you wish maybe everybody in the country needs to do a retest? To be citizen? Uh-huh. Be a citizen. Yeah. So show us show us you are this a citizen that deserves to be here. Mm-hmm. And everybody needs to go through the test. What if you fail? We would be deporting Sayonara. a lot of people. <laughs> we kick you out. Don't you think, like, how great would that be if, like, are you employed? Does your employment add to the sustainability and the power of the United States? Uh-oh. Notice, because they're going to have to say, yeah, but these jobs, I mean, we'll just get other people. And they can come back legally some other day, but we only want certain people into the country. Do, do you really want someone judging what you do? Yes. As if, like, this is beneficial to oh, America? <laughs> all you have to do is listen to this. And then throw some trivia in there. Who shot Jr. Oh, yeah, yeah. you got to know the pop culture. By the way, that was one of our questions um, at the reunion. Really? Yeah. And I still don't remember who shot Jer. It was one of his girlfriends, I thought. You said that with a very proud face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Finally. Totally. A barber in southwestern China does some hair-raising things to his customers. He's a barber, hair-raising. See, a little thing there. Nice little pun. Like shave their eyeballs. Can you take a little off my cornea? <laughs> He's one of the few barbers still practicing the Ouch. age-old art of eyeball shaving. The 62-year-old actually puts a sharp razor right on the eyeball <laughs> of his patrons and scrapes off any dirt and residue that might be there. As terrifying as it sounds, the barber claims that in 40 years of eyeball shaving, he has never injured anyone. Eyeball shaving was used in hospitals in the early 20th century to treat uh, tracheoma. A bacterial condition that is the as most common infection cause of blindness in the world. Oh, wow. Uh, this according to the World Health Association. Not, and his customers or, no longer need prescriptions anymore. Prescription right. glasses. Yeah, it's, yeah, he's, he's giving him LASIK, yeah. That's the beginning of LASIK. Back then, <laughs> eye shaving was a way to scrape away the ulcers and scar tissue under uh, tracheoma patients' eyelids and stimulate the eye enough to secrete a liquid that would moisten the eye sockets. Blah! Did we China, have to bring this story Chinese up? medical officials say that the eyeball shaving is potentially dangerous and has been phased out, and other more cutting-edge and less cutting treatments yeah, have been come available. making puns. So um, <laughs> I'd like you to take a little off the top, and then can you scrape my oh, left yeah. eyelid, my the, left eyeball, please? The pictures of this uh, procedure are really I can't even. I can't, I can't even touch my eyeball. Contacts. I do it every day. I wouldn't even trust a barber to shave my neck with a straight edge razor. Yeah, that always that always scares me. <laughs> Just like, man, what what if you like sneeze? Well, <laughs> You're a stranger. Here's twenty dollars. You can slip my throat. Here, Would you like neck. your eyeball scrape today? Oh. No. 
How about a hot towel? <laughs> yeah. I guess I'll do the hot towel. Do you want your hair washed? No, that's a little personal. Yeah. But I will have my eyeball scraped. Yeah. Can that's you crazy. just vacuum up my head afterwards? That'll be just fine. Can you imagine your your guy doing that or your lady? No. Ah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. While we're Oof. talking about eyeball scraping, let's now move to tattoos. Apparently, you may not know this, gentlemen. Tattoos could give you cancer, according to some new research. Well, have they, though? Chemicals in tattoo ink travels in the bloodstream. People have been tattooed for hundreds of years. Right. By the way, notice a lot of them dead. Whoa. Well, mm-hmm. you know, eventually. All of them. Point made. I don't know. Okay. Uh, here's what's going on, though. Um, inside of ink, the ink that they use is a, is a chemical called titanium dioxide. And it's added to the tattoo ink to create certain colors, even dyes. It even dyes the lymph nodes. And it travels, that chemical travels through your system and eventually ends up getting accumulating in your lymph nodes. So a lot of people with a lot of tattoos tend to have swollen lymph nodes apparently. Hmm. And along with that, other other infections that come from the needles and other things – but they're finding out that before you go get a tattoo, you better know what's in the ink and make sure that titanium dioxide is, uh, is, is maybe not in there because there is a link, I guess, between titanium dioxide and some other chemicals is, as so carcinogenic. Are these chemicals like a new feature that's been added to ink? Well, yeah, it's probably is it, like, is it a recent thing? Has it been around all the time? Well, didn't or? they used to just grab an octopus and no. de-ink it? No, they didn't just drain a pen and you know <laughs> ink you up. No, give me your ink. Uh, I don't know if it's a new thing. I, uh, in fact, is it a see. recent development that's been causing the problem? Because sometimes they try to improve on the existing procedure, and when they do that, they you know cause other issues. It's uh, titanium dioxide is the second most commonly used ingredient in tattoo ink. Wow. It's whitening and thick- thickening properties. Uh, means it's also added to washing detergents, fragrances, air fresheners, and paint. So let's stick mm. that in our body. Yeah. So okay. now, oh, by the way, and it's a lubricant in motor oil. Nice. Mm-hmm. It's by the way. It helps it also, the tattoo go on smooth. It right? cools. Li- it's a cooling liquid in a fridge too. It's a very <laughs> diverse tool. It seems interesting. Yeah. Uh, previous research has linked titanium dioxide to itching and delayed healing. In the European Chemical Agency's announcement, titanium dioxide is a substance suspected of causing cancer when inhaled. Mm. And they're finding it now in your lymph nodes if you've had a tattoo. Because it collects there. So just yeah. don't sniff your tattoos. No, it's yeah, – <laughs> have you ever had one of those clear. scratch yeah. and sniff tattoos? Yeah. Mm, strawberry. Mm, that's – mom, can I rub your strawberries <laughs> so I can smell your great smell? That's funny. That's gross. Huh, okay. Anyway, well, just we're, we want to protect you. We're Watch out for that. And, uh, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy Carter is just suggesting to President Trump it might be time to just keep the peace, promote human rights, and tell the truth. Wow. That's his advice. By the way, the most direct advice. Nothing about peanuts? He's received. Yeah. And eat mm. peanuts regularly. And go to Sunday school class because he he's a Sunday school teacher. one every week or every other week, yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. Wouldn't you love to go to Jimmy Carter Sunday school class? How fun would that be? Cool stuff, folks. Straight ahead, we're going to uh, be revisiting an awesome interview. A guy, this was really a brain twister. I loved it. Sarah Getty Rules is the name of the book. The quest to discover how life works and why it matters. That's straight ahead on the Matt Townsend Show. 
Have you ever wondered how there seemed to be always just the right amount of fish in the sea or just the right number of cells in your body? Uh, has it ever crossed your mind how miraculous all of that is? Is it chance or is there some sort of regulation behind it all? You know, these seem like such simple fundamental questions, but they have a huge impact on our lives. And a few months ago, I spoke with an award-winning biologist, Sean Carroll, and uh, we did an interview on his book, The Serengeti Rules. And in the interview, he talks about how his discoveries of these profoundly important questions matter for our health and the health of our planet that we depend on. Before the interview, Sean Carroll uh, took his family on a trip to the Serengeti, and he made a video of the trip, and I was able to watch the video. And I began the interview commenting on how he looked like a kid in a candy store while visiting that region of Africa. Yeah, I mean, I, I was surprised by how surprised I was. Yeah. I mean, I had for decades wanted to go there, and as a little kid, I saw nature films just like everybody else, and you know, you sort of think you've been prepared by you know watching TV or something, and it was more awesome than I had imagined. Oh, I bet, I, I truly bet. And to have your and to see it then through your kids' eyes is that what made you write the book, The Serengeti Rules? What 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 was your purpose behind this? Um, I, mean, I when I hear you talk, I almost sense it was a family. Like you want to hand down these ideas so that the people know about it. Well, yeah. I, well, let me. I'll be really honest with you. I, there, I was a professional biologist. Now, my biology has mostly been indoors. Yeah. I've studied life at the more invisible level of genes and cells and how bodies are made. And there I am on the magnificent Serengeti, and I'm looking around, and quite honestly, I didn't understand how it worked. Uh-huh. And that's, you know, that's what scientists want to know. We want to know how the world works. We want to know, you know, what makes things the way they are. You know, what are sort of cause and effect right. in the world. And I'm, I'm looking at, you know, the enormous number of wildebeest or, you know, majestic giraffe, and I don't know why there are so many of those and so few of something else. And I thought, well, does anybody know this? Uh, you know, I, I was sitting there. I just did not know what I was looking at, and I did not know what biologists knew about what I was. Looking oh yeah. At. So that that prompted me to do some of my own homework and dig up what turned out to be a really large body of work. That yeah, scientists been work on this for a while, and I thought <laughs> I should share some of that oh, with the great. world, share some of their stories. I mean, if you don't know, I mean, who knows, right? Well, One scientist in some room somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's it's very hard to spread discoveries across the world, and that communicating what scientists have discovered and what it means is a you know is a really big and important job. It's what, something that I try to contribute to. And here was a case where I thought it was some a great stories were gift wrapped because you know these are really the storybook animals of our childhood. You know, uh, zebras and giraffes and lions and all right. that sort of stuff. So what a great place to understand how nature works in general. And that's one of the main themes of the book is that. This every kind of major rule about how ecosystems work, how habitats work, is on display in the Serengeti. But really, every place is a Serengeti, whether it's a tide pool or your backyard garden, anywhere where you've got plants, things that eat plants, and things hmm. that eat the things that eat the plants. You've got a Serengeti. Yeah. Oh, powerful. Talk to us. What are what are uh, what are some of the learnings? What are some of the rules? Well, I think the first rule is, uh, and it comes to paraphrase uh, a great zoologist, that um, um, 
some animals are more equal than others. Uh, <laughs> when you look out there, you might sort of think that everything has its sort of role and everything's sort of in balance. But it turns out that some creatures are more important than others, and without them, um, whole communities can unravel. And this was uh, discovered in the 1960s by a uh, biologist, Bob Payne, and he discovered it not on the Serengeti. He discovered it in... Uh, coastal systems of the Pacific Northwestern United States. And when he removed predatory starfish from the rocks there, he saw that the community collapsed completely, that all sorts of creatures that were there and sort of coexisting um, disappeared, and all you had left was basically a bed of mussels. And that gave us the idea called a keystone species same idea as a keystone in a Roman arch. That, mm -hmm. That's the last stone at the top of the apex. And if you remove that keystone, you know, the whole thing collapses. And this has now been discovered again and again in the world that there are keystone species in all sorts of habitats that without them, um, you know, the community doesn't work well. And in the Serengeti of all things, and I, I'll, I'll get that this story takes a little second to get to, but you know, we're so used to, I mean, if you watch a show on Africa, you know, first 90 seconds, you're going to see a cat chase a right. gazelle or something. Exactly. Like that, right? Yeah. And that's what we've all come become used to. But if you were to ask Tony Sinclair, another biologist who's worked 50 years on the Serengeti, he said, what makes the Serengeti tick? It, it's the animal nobody takes pictures of. <laughs> it, it, it's the wildebeest. Really? Um, it's a million wildebeest. They act like a million lawnmowers going across the Serengeti in a 600-mile circuit year-round. And it's that action, that mundane action of munching grass that essentially prepares the whole habitat and the whole system for all sorts of creatures, including the carnivores, but giraffes, butterflies, the trees, all that's influenced by the wildebeest. And uh, it took a long time to sort of figure that out. And I'm, I laughed about it when I told you the story because when I wrote this book and needed pictures of wildebeest from our African trip, <laughs> You couldn't find one. Couldn't find them. I had giraffes. I had zebras. I had lions. But you just look right past them because they just, you know, they're not very charismatic. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah they're, they're, yeah, they're not the popular ones. Nobody's like, I want to be a wildebeest for Halloween. No, you kind of figure that, you know, munching grass and, you know, being eaten by lions doesn't really, you know, define the, our, our greatest aspirations. But as it turns out, migration, this, this huge migratory herd of a million wildebeest, just has an enormous effect on how the Serengeti works. And, um, you know, that, that's, that's what humans have to appreciate is that we don't quite understand, you know, at first glance, at second glance, how something works, how, what makes a forest healthy, what makes a, a lake healthy. It's not necessarily obvious, and we've got to do some experiments. We've got to study things for a while, and that's really important to our managing these places so that they can continue to produce what, what humans demand. Mm. I mean, that is, the, the, yeah, just the idea of this keystone species. I mean, that is, it's critical, right? So the wildebeest, if they were destroyed, the Serengeti disappears. Yeah, it, 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 would, it would have in, a, enormous problems. And, and, you know, you would, you would sort of imagine you'd, you'd start having things sort of fragment. You'd have uh, really a whole lot of interactions change. You would have um, a lot more fire. All that fire will end up burning up more of the trees. You'd have fewer trees, which is less habitat for the birds, less cover for the carnivores. You'd actually have fewer butterflies. Um, you know, a whole domino series of events would happen. Um, you know, we don't really know what the ultimate outcome of that would be, but we certainly know that um, the whole landscape would change and the inhabitants with it. 
Hmm. Uh, one of the things, too, that you bring up, I know, early in the book is about regulation. And, right. and one of the sections is about everything is regulated and there's rules to regulation. What do you mean by regulation? Like the regulation of the the existence of the animals or what? The numbers, really. So if you if you ask so let's just go to our bodies for 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 example we all know for example that you know we got our cholesterol checked we got our blood sugar checked etc well those things are kept by processes in our body are generally kept in a fairly narrow range and when they get out of that range we may either feel sick or we may know in the long run we may have some problems yeah. diabetes heart disease etc so there are processes in the body that govern the amount of virtually everything there's probably 30,000 different substances in our bodies and generally they're made in fairly constant amounts <laughs> and kept in those ranges and and when they get out of those ranges we're usually the first to know it we don't feel well something's wrong um so that's understanding the rules of regulation in the body and what i mean by those rules is you know how do we keep um blood sugar you know in in the right range um well that part of that answer is insulin right we discover right. the players that are part of this process for regulating things in the body. And the discovery of those players and the rules they play by has been huge for medicine over the last five or six decades. It's, it's just transformed the way we, we do medicine and the way we try to keep ourselves healthy. Well, by the same analogy, there are important players out in nature, like the keystone species I've talked about, and there are rules that govern the interactions between creatures, between animals and plants, and between animals and other animals. And those rules determine the relative numbers of things. You know, why are there, you know, so many small fry in a lake and so few large predatory fish? You know, right. what are the rules that, that, that govern that? And so that's what biologists have been trying to figure out for 50 or 60 years, really a different tribe of biologists. The, the biologists we call ecologists have been trying to figure out how nature works on that large scale, while indoor biologists like me have been trying to figure out how things work on the scale of you know, human body and how our organs and cells and, and molecules within them work. Wow, fascinating stuff. Sean, we'll be right back. We're talking with uh, uh, Sean Carroll about his book, The Serengeti Rules, Discovering How Life Works and Why It Matters. Fascinating insights, folks. Think of how little we know, and uh, and yet there's so much order, so much structure and regulation out there that's just happening um, naturally. Stick with us, folks. Interesting stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Sean B. Carroll. He is a uh, he's an incredible um, biologist, researcher, and award-winning scientist, writer, educator, and executive producer. And he's talking to us about his book, uh, The Serengeti Rules: Discovering How Life Works and Why It Matters. Sean, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Matt. This um, to me, this has to be. Like sometimes as you're doing your research, your mind had to have been blown by just certain things you were learning. What were some what were some concepts that when you heard them, you couldn't believe it? 
Yeah, I, I think, um, well, this book is really the stories of the people who made these discoveries. And yeah. it's always fun to sort of walk in their footsteps and because they generally had those same eureka moments themselves. I, I can sort of both identify as a scientist, but also that's as a storyteller. That's what I'm really trying to relate to a, a reader or a listener is that, you know, people go out in the world and they try to figure out, you know, how does this work? What's going on? And I think one of the stories I like best comes from biologist Jim Estes, who was up on the Aleutian Islands. Um, the, he'd gotten a government job up there because they were going to, I guess they're going to carve out some harbors by detonating some <laughs> atomic bombs underwater. <laughs> oh, great. This is, the, this is the 60s. Yeah, the good old days. The good old days. And he was up there because he was going to monitor some of the wildlife populations, including the otters. Well, long story short, he um, came to try to understand the role of the otters in the ecosystem. You might think, you know, we see otters and, you know, they're playful and cute. it's fun how they, yeah, they're cute. They eat the animals, you know, pounding things on their chests and yeah. that kind of stuff. Well, as it turns out, there are places in the Aleutian Islands with and without otters. And uh, Jim is a diver. And when Jim went underwater and compared these two places, it, they were like two different worlds. He, he said the, 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 the greatest instant of learning in his life was when he put his head underwater in a, uh, on an island that ha- off an island that had no otters. Because what had happened there, it was completely carpeted with sea urchins, hmm. and there was no seaweed, no kelp forest, none of the, you know, the big stands of kelp that yeah. swim in and all that sort of stuff. And what happens is, and this is because of the fur trade, from almost a century earlier, at the turn of the, of the 19th century into the 20th, otters had almost been eliminated all along the Pacific Rim, from Japan all the way to Southern California. There were really probably 100,000 animals had been, had been decimated to about 1,000, and that meant they were absent from most places. And then they started with, after protection early in the 20th century, they started rebounding, but the rebound was patchy. So on some islands, they had big, you know, several thousand otters in a population, other islands, none. And a huge difference there. And what happens was that the otters, as predators, carnivores, and they spend all their time at sea. So they eat a tremendous amount of food. Yeah. And they control the urchin populations. And if they're not there, the urchins essentially denude um, all of the plant material growing on the coast. Oh, wow. So so they're – yeah, they're like the – they're the janitor service of they're the cleanup pickup crew of the urchin world. That's that's right. They are control. They're regulating mm-hmm. the amount, the number of sea urchins, which in turn regulates the amount of plant growth, which in turn creates a habitat for all sorts of things: the fish, etc. The fish that, for example, eagles and other water right. birds feed on um, habitat for other kind of shellfish and things like that. So it's these cascading effects that whether or not you have otters determines through a whole set of cascades, just like a domino effect, whether or not all sorts of creatures could live there or not, or whether you basically just have an, a carpet of sea urchins. And you can't affect the system without affect a part of the system without affecting the whole system. That's right, because because of these sorts of connections. But the connections, I mean, Jim Estes was stunned. Yeah. Nobody thought. Yeah. Nobody thought that predators, which were not that abundant, right? If you think about the world, you know, predators are, are you know, not the most abundant kind of animal, that they were actually sort of driving the system from the top down, that they were influencing 
just not only what they ate, but what you know what the things they ate ate in turn. Huh. And that was a that was a revelation. And then once that was revealed, then we started to understand the role of predators around the world. Why wolves play an important role, for example, in controlling, you know, deer and elk in the American West. Um, the role of big cats like lions in Africa and how they control everything from baboons to other sorts of animals that can otherwise become tremendous pests to, to wow. humans. So, and same thing in the oceans. What, what a large predatory fish, what a tuna and cod, and what do they do um, in the ocean? And what is our removal of them, because they taste so good, yeah. um, you know, what does that do? And, and wh- then how do we have to manage our fisheries in order for things to be um, you know, sustainable for the long term? So this was uh, an eye-opening experience. And for me, um, you know, and I have met uh, Jim since, uh, you know, it's just to, to that kind of revelation where you know, you, we look at nature and we just sort of observe and we sort of think everything, you know, is is in its place, but we really don't understand the interactions uh, unless we look much deeper. And those interactions are, are so important for us understanding and managing the world. Oh, yeah. What what would you say, Sean? We have about a minute left. Um, what would you say is is one of the most important lessons that we humans get out of this work? Uh, the most important is how resilient nature is. And, the, and the, the back part of the book talks about conservation. And, you know, as species have been protected, whether that's, that's bald eagles or elephant seals or otters or the American alligator, et cetera, based on the understanding of these rules, we understand now species can come roaring back if the habitat is still there. And I tell the story of a, of a national park in Africa that's a great uh, example of that. And, and so I think the most important thing I want to share with listeners is that uh, there's still time to change the road we're on. It, it is amazing how resilient nature is and how quickly populations can rebound if we ease off uh, the pressure we put on them. We've learned this again and again in managing commercial fisheries, and we're seeing it in lots of other situations. And um, I think that's that's hopefully uh, that's a ray of that's optimism it. there because uh, we do know more about nature than yeah. when we started doing things 50 years ago, and, and that, that – knowledge is power. Oh, and that is powerful. And and again, it's such a great book and I appreciate your passion around it too because we need the information, right? We we've got to we got to just quit assuming we can explode a device somewhere and not impact the world. <laughs> um, we appreciate you Sean Carroll. Thank you so much for your great work. Thanks for having me, man. You bet. The Serengeti Rules, Discovering How Life Works and Why It Matters. Go check out uh, Sean's website, seanbcarroll.com. Excellent resource for all of us, folks. See, there's great people in the world and doing wonderful things. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit two of our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's that time, folks. Yes. The intensity is here. And uh, because we better get down to uh, the real intense players at BYU Broadcasting, Spencer and Jerem, as they prepare fastidiously for BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Man, the intensity is ratcheted up with this music. Yes, and the use of the word fastidiously. I know. Fastidiously? By the way, that will never happen again. What does that mean? It means you're doing it with fastidiousness. Thank you for that. You bet. I'm looking up the actual definition right now. How are you guys, by the way, while you're doing that? Um, it's an interesting time right now. 
Yeah. I know. Because Tanner Mangum's status is in question. Yes. Right? Is he? He's not fully healthy. How injured is he? Is he playing? Is he not playing? What's going on? He's got a top 10 team. Number six will be retired. Staley, Bosco, and Mark Wilson. Wilson. That's, that's kind Ula of Ula tells the guy at running back. There's a lot of rich storylines going. BYU's a 17-point dog against Wisconsin. <laughs> so we're like, there's a lot going on. This is uh, exciting slash uh, worrisome a little bit. Definition of fastidious. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very attentive to and concerned about accuracy and detail. That is not us. Synonyms. Scrupulous. Punctilious. Ooh. Punctilious? Painstaking. Yeah, punk. You just got punked. Meticulous. Mm-hmm. 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 Yes, we are fastidious. That's you. Trying to figure out how BYU That's you guys. can pull off a miracle on Saturday and beat Wisconsin. Bunch of punks. Yeah. Hey, um... Help me with this. When they retire a jer- one jersey for three men, do the three men have to wear the one jersey yeah, they, at once at one time? Jer- it's actually Malongi's jersey. They all fit into it. <laughs> How embarrassing. They all, but they all just squeeze into it and then they take a picture? Yeah. Honestly, um, I'm hoping this jersey retirement is better than the Jim McMahon one. Yeah, why, what happened eight? there? What number was he again? I can't even remember. Nine? Nine. Uh, <laughs> When Jim McMahon at halftime had his jersey retired, Taysom Hill had just broken his leg. Oh. And BYU was trailing to little brother. Mm. And yeah, yeah. I that was and sad. The mood in the stadium was depressed. Uh. It was uh. awful. That was one of the weirdest things I've ever experienced as a just a sports viewer. So I, I want BYU to be in the game. Like, Boy. even the Utah game, BYU's down 9 nothing on Saturday. It was a little weird, but it wasn't like BYU's out of it. Yeah, right, right. BYU hasn't been out of it in the Utah and LSU games. At half no, time. no. It was 14 nothing against LSU. BYU was feeling pretty overmatched. But anyway, I hope Saturday is Maybe? hopeful at Maybe. halftime. Then we can enjoy the amazing careers of those three players. That's right. Maybe there's a miracle. Maybe, maybe a miracle. Maybe something can happen. I mean, maybe. I mean, some... well, that's the beauty of sports. <laughs> yeah, be- because I like it when it's singular. The beauty of sport. That's the beauty of sport. Sport, not sports. <laughs> of the sport. By the way, do you? I don't know if you guys remember this. Tanner Mangum threw a hail mary pass to win. That's a desperation play. I know, but they still won. No team. Uh, yes. <laughs> Let's talk about all the Hail Marys that haven't made yeah. it to the end. No, no, no. Shh, you know what I mean? Shh, don't bring those up. Yeah. Yeah. Desperation. Amazing. Does, does Luck t- to some degree. Right? Do, you think, do you think Tanner needs me? I'm, I'm a doctor. Do you, do you want me to go check out his leg? I'll check it out. I'll check out his what ankle. What do you know about ankles? I've got two of them. Okay. Used That's them for 48 years. That's a start. My And by the way, not to brag, my my ankles are very dainty. Very, uh, I twist them a lot. Well, so, I'm sorry, you need to the, wear them braces. Not, not, not something a lot of guys brag about. Start calling you MRI Townsend. <laughs> <laughs> my, my mom always said I got grandma's ankles. <laughs> and I don't even know what that means, but it just yeah. feels wrong. I was just going to ask you to explain that. <laughs> hey, um, that's just funny there. Hey, what do you guys think about – and I don't know if we've talked about this before. You heard that Golden State Warriors have been – have now picked up a sponsorship by a Japanese team named uh, Rankuten. No, Rakuten. 
and it's a twenty million dollar deal. So that they now have the Rakuten logo on the front of their Golden State jersey. Yeah, this is a new thing. Uh, Nike got the jerseys. Uh, there's a BYU grad that works at Nike. That's our amigo. Ah, that's uh, friend and, in Spanish. If people don't know, yeah, yeah, just so translated. This this is a new thing for the NBA. They're going to have some sponsors. In fact, yeah, that's weird. The fight for five. Or Fight for the Cure is the Utah Jazz sponsored logo from Qualtrics. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So that's the way that's the way you do it. You you then you you fight for something other than just a company. Or you fight for that Japanese company. Mm-hmm. Rakuten. Yeah. Or Rakutan. I don't know how you say it. Rakutan. Hey, uh talk about your show, gentlemen. You I know you're locked and loaded because you've you've been fastidiously preparing. Yeah, oh man. That's a new word. Man. I, I appreciate uh-huh. that. Thanks, Spence, for looking that up. You're welcome. Matt didn't give us the answer. <laughs> no, I didn't even know that. <laughs> I learned that from my father, who was reading the book. He told me, he's like, when I was reading the book, Jesus the Christ, I literally had a dictionary next to me, and every word I didn't Ooh, understand, yeah. Oh, yeah. I would look it up. And he said, That's a whole other conversation. He, Talmadge has a whole different vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> but my dad has Taking a huge a vocabulary now, and that only helped it. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. They're all words from the 1920s. Exactly. <laughs> Fastidiously, I'm sure, is somewhere in that book. If no one understands the words you're saying, are they good words? To no. Use? <laughs> no. Today we are discussing an expectations overhaul for BYU football. Man, I don't know if you noticed, but what? after a one and two start, the sky is falling. <laughs> there is zero hope for BYU football. Oh, yeah. I've heard that before. Ah, yes, you have. And why is that? And what happened when you heard that before? It turned around. Talk about that. They went nine and four. Is that what it is? Talk about that. Is BYU in danger of going eight and five? We're going to discuss. By the way, would be a disappointment. But would it? Yeah. Okay. Just checking. You can't can't take a step backwards with an extra regular season game. There you go. That's true. Yeah. We'll also talk to Kairos Tonga, the second biggest player on BYU's team, to Malungi. That's that's a great. That's a great accolade. Greg Rubel, resident Canadian. Voice of the Cougars. By the way, Greg Rubel, I think, is about the fourth largest guy in BYU broadcasting sports section. What do you? What? And we were talking the, about size of guys. Who's and, the biggest? <laughs> well, I, you it guys. It used to be Ben. Ben. Ben's less a lot of. Lot no, of Ben's just tall now, and um, I mean, Ben's I'm just just tall now. Yeah, he he doesn't sometimes, weigh anything. Sometimes I say, "Man, skinny Ben is oh one my. way." I miss fat. Yeah. Ben. I, I, I'm not even going there. I got to let you guys go because you have to go get ready. Ben, we're, Ben we're needs. Ready. Thank you. Well, we're Ben ready. needs to. Thank I guess there's some waxing we've got to do. So you're out of here. Gone. Ah, I carried him a little long there because we were talking about Ben, producer Ben, and I think once you talk about producer Ben, I, I think I feel like it's we can do whatever we want. We're free to go. Ben, the two of us need look no more. Okay, remember we weren't going to sing anymore. I don't know if those are actually the lyrics. They weren't. Uh, Let's head down to Beaumont, Texas, for our hero story of the day. Carlos Rostro remembers what it was like to rescue hundreds from their flooded homes in Beaumont, Texas. The 22-year-old server from Cafe Del Rio is uh, being praised by the men who put their lives at risk for others. Working with the fire department, it was like a brotherhood. One did one thing, but the other person did did it too. Together we got the job done, he said. Rostro joined several other Beaumont first responders, helping them hand-in-hand when Harvey struck. He even helped translating English to those who didn't speak it. Uh, I think it's amazing to see hardships of people, the hardships of the first responders. It shows that he has some drive and willingness for public service, said District Chief Scott Wheat with Beaumont Fire and Rescue. 
Carlos was seen everywhere helping out, giving his all, and uh, they even made a hashtag for him called Be Like Carlos. So, Carlos, you are the hero of the day for being a, being a, somebody that just steps up, does what you can, and, uh, and makes a difference to the lives of the people around you. And that, my friends, is the show. We'll be back again tomorrow, 9 to noon Eastern, right here on BYU Broadcasting to help you uh, get a leg up in life. Until then, let's watch out for each other, let's take care of each other, and let's make it a great one. BYU Sports Nation, it's up next.